All right, so this is this is the story of the night I got to see one of my favorite DJs, R.A.W. I went with some friends to Labyrinth Lounge in downtown Toronto. I'd never heard of the place, but one of my all-time favorite DJs, if not my very most favorite, R.A.W. from Los Angeles, was headlining the party. I'd been listening to his copy of a copy of a copy of his tapes for half a decade and just had to see the guy. I lucked out and got a free parking spot right around the corner from the front door. This fortuitousness is unheard of in Toronto. Foreshadowing. We circumnavigated the bouncers, payload unperturbed. We paid the entry fee and checked our coats. Before entering the venue proper were some fine associates of the Chills Rolling Papers Company selling raffle tickets. Why not, I figured, and I flipped the guy a couple of bucks. He took out a bicycle playing card, tore it, and gave me half. Pocketed. We start out the night as we always did, scoping the rooms and corridors and getting a lay of the land. <laughs> we found a cozy spot on the dance floor, thick with peers of all walks of life. Toronto is the second most ethnically diverse city on earth, and we blended in. We warmed up with a little dance and sparked up a spliff, passing it back and forth. With nary a puff remaining, a slender stick of a bouncer approached me and demanded whatever was in my hand. I presented him the pathetic smoldering nub remaining. He swatted it out of my hand and stepped on it, thankfully dismissing me rather than ejecting me as he was probably obligated to do. Then we took another walk around. I was a college student and teacher assistant and was perplexingly excelling at my studies. As luck would have it, I bumped into one of my intro to operating systems students in the chill-out lounge. Let's call my headspace inarticulate at this point. We exchanged wobbly familiarities, and over the loud music, I barely made out a question about MS-DOS batch files. Luckily, this was a topic I could slur successfully, and I somehow helped him with his homework. I assumed a fist bump would be a mutually understood parting, and he didn't disappoint. Back to the main dance floor. Toronto has a world-class jungle scene, and a roster of local DJs here is half a year of headliners elsewhere in North America. I danced enthusiastically and was feeling just fine. The night progressed until my finally my boy, R.A.W., stepped up to the Technics 1200s. Cheers. I squeezed ahead so that I could see him perform. R.A.W.'s tapes were the soundtrack of my post-high school days. I loved them to pieces. He had a mixing style and a knack for picking underground records no one else played. His music was chugging, clever, playful, full of movie samples, no easy feat with the day's technology, and wackiness, but a careful hand and discerning ear. His tapes were big shoes to fill. Did the short man in front of me have the feet? Heck, yes. I only recognized a couple of tunes from his tapes. The rest were a little more modern, but right on point. Precisely the kind of stuff I hoped for. His specialty was older jungle music, back before the subgenres had budded from the electronic Pangea, as a DJ friend eloquently described the era to me. Today, the genres of jungle and techno couldn't be farther apart, but R.A.W. zeroed in on the thought-provoking amalgamation of jungle techno that stimulated your brain, hips, and feet. I was on cloud nine. This was my musical G-spot. Despite my many motivations to attend raves, it was always about the music first, and this guy's dexterous presentations spoke directly to me. This was the musical zenith I never knew existed, the perfect DJ set. I smiled and smiled and smiled like never before in my life. It was over before I knew it. 3 a.m. and my compatriots, whom I forgot were even with me, told me they'd catch a ride home with a buddy. I cooled off next to the excellent yet relatively inferior DJ, shuffling my feet and reflecting on the night. The crowd thinned with the hour. Halfway through the set, the MC quelled the music and held up half a playing card. He called out the suit and number. 
I pulled mine out of my breast pocket and grimaced. Nobody claimed the prize, and he tossed the card on the floor. He pulled out another card and called it. Silence. A third card. I blinked. I raised my card in the air and approached the front of the room. Unfamiliar well-wishers uh, patting my back as I parted a sea of baggy pants like Stoner Moses. <laughs> I don't remember what was said, but when it was all said and done, the loudmouth host patted me on the back way too hard and handed me a five-foot bong, blood, blood red with a bulbous blue alien head at the bottom. I tried to engineer the logistics of the thing as it was longer than the human arm. <laughs> Then I was pulled aside by a guy with an enormous camera. Congrats, pal. I'm with Tribe Magazine. Smile. Pretty demanding fellow. I tried to oblige. I really did. I don't remember ever having this reaction before, but I couldn't smile. I just couldn't. I didn't realize until then that my facial muscles were utterly exhausted from all the smiling I'd been doing all night, and this guy snapped photo after photo of the guy with the ugliest, most worthless, half-assed smirk he must have ever seen. I was immortalized, smiled out, in Toronto's free rave magazine. He finally, mercifully dismissed me. That's a night, I figured. I ain't dancing with this acrylic monstrosity in tow. I made my way uh, out around 4 a.m., when a stubbly scruff in a baseball cap shook me by the hand and congratulated me on my win. I'll give you $150 right now for that thing. Sorry, bloke, this is my souvenir from the night I saw R.A.W. $200 right now. Have a good night, friend. I traded my claim ticket for my goods, and the raven-haired code check girl pointed at my prize and laughed. I had to give her a tough-looking jungleist nod because, you know, my face wasn't cooperating anymore. I burst open the doors, and huge snowflakes were miraculously fluttering like graceful feathers, yellow under the downtown streetlights. Thank friggin' goodness for that incredible parking spot. I could hardly conceal the behemoth under my coat. I turned on my car, and R.A.W.'s No Darkness mixtape came back to life. I drove home and went to sleep. The next morning, with a nervous lump in my throat, I explained to my incredulous parents why I came home with the biggest bong any of us would ever see. <laughs> Welcome to another beep episode of uh, Square Waves FM. Today's episode number 63. And I apologize in advance if you're bored serious by today's topic. Excuse me. <laughs> where uh, Brian and our guest will be talking about Snore, the so-called rave scene, and being nostalgic about a bunch of boring stuff that nobody usually gives two shits about. <laughs> I'm your host, Bianca, and, my co- and with me as always is my co-host, Brian. We got... Uh, our lovely ambient noise in the background, courtesy of Joey. And today's guest is uh, a lovely individual by the name of Brandon Sweet. Say hi to the nice people, Brandon. Hi. Hey. Really glad to have you uh, join us, Brandon. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, sure. It's, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking, I can't really recall exactly how it was that you and I met on Twitter. Do you remember? Did it have to do with your mixtapes, mixtape website? Oh, it very well could. Yeah, I I actually don't remember either. That's really something. I sort of recall you and I just talking about I don't know what, and it just so happened that we both had, like, similar geographies and more than similar tastes in music. And then that kind of, through some conversation, revealed that we had some some, uh, uh, alike experiences in the 90s. 
That sounds about right. I guess so. Well, small world. But, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. Too cool. Well, dear, do you want to um, – I, I want to engage you as much as I can before before <laughs> uh, my, before my brother from another mother here. Begins. Yeah, that's right. So how would you like to take us through our so-called pre-show stuffos? Sure, since I, uh, I'm i the uh, fan here. I mean, I even – The fan? I mean, how many of you can say you uh, go around wearing Star Trek regalia on a regular basis? I have my uh, Star Trek uh, necklace. You did not just say the word regalia. <laughs> <laughs> What? I'm sorry if I'm using such pretentious verbi. <laughs> oh gosh! All I'm saying is you have to go a pretty long way for me to f- consider you to be a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, you called me a nerd the last time I got into a debate about Game of Thrones with our brother-in-law. Oh yes, I did. I called you both nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and he texted to me too while you sat there looking piss bored out of your mind on the couch. Right. So, Admiral, Rear Admiral, <laughs> what do you got for us in terms of Star Trek talk? Okay, so when we put the call out last week, we got three responses from our regular listeners. First, Two responses to what? To uh, our question is, who is your favorite Star Trek captains? So I'll start off by answering, in case, so those of you who don't remember my answer. Did I even answer last week? I don't think I did. I don't remember. Why don't you go ahead? Well, I, my favorite would be Janeway. I'm, he, Janeway is my number one choice, followed, of course, by Picard, then Cisco. Then all the way down the list is Kirk, and then I can't really rate Archer because I've never seen Enterprise. Yeah, we didn't really get through the first episode, did we? No, that was kind of... It was just a whole lot of plotting and what the hell is this garbage? <laughs> I'm sure we need to give it another chance, though. We probably do. Mm-hmm. Joey, who's your favorite Star Trek captain? Captain Rat? <laughs> Alrighty. So... Mr. Trolls has spared us a uh, verbose voicemail in favor of a one-line sentence to tell us that his favorite is Captain Picard, followed by Janeway. Mm Mm-hmm. You two have so much in common. (laughs) Another one of our listeners, Joe Mastrioni. Hi, Joe. uh, Hi, Joe. And tells us that his favorite is Captain Sisko. That is a fine choice as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And finally, Darth Helmet. Picks Picard and then Kirk. Mm-hmm. What well, about you? What are you? Who? 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 Who would your favorite captains be? Yeah, Brendan. Do you? Are you a Star Trek fan? Oh well, yeah. Um, I certainly grew up watching uh, the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. I think I like Deep Space Nine the best. But uh, right on. So I guess I would go uh, Cisco and Picard, and then I don't don't really care okay, uh, too enough. much beyond that. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. That's still they're, cool. all, they're all good in their own ways. They really are, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think mm-hmm. I, I don't think I stated my preference. And having seen all of those except for Enterprise, I am honestly going to go with Kirk as my favorite. Even though I've seen Next Generation much more than the other series, and even though I do like Deep Space Nine very, very much, mm-hmm. yeah, that has a great. They do a great job of tying in an overarching story while still having. Well, episodes that can stand on their own for the most part. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Bianca and I were sort of chatting about this over brunch about how Deep Space Nine does this good, like, serialized storytelling, whereas the others, you can kind of watch in almost any order and there's not too much continuity from show to show or season mm-hmm. to season. But I don't know. I thought about it and I kind of like Kirk. I think he's like, he's compassionate, but he's tough. And he's a jerk, but he's. Uh, Cowboy diplomacy, fair. as Janeway puts it. Yeah, that's right. Very much so. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. So there's really no wrong answer to this, is there? <laughs> well, I'm sure there are some folks who would say that, but uh, I, I don't think there is. Right. Okay. Good stuff. You can stay with us then. <laughs> <laughs> 
So then we also have a couple of tweets that I have no... Oh, I guess these were in response to... Um, Oh, so this is in response to our show last week where we were talking about uh, rebooted games and remastered yeah. games, and I spoke highly about the soundtrack more than the game of DuckTales, which woo was... Woo-woo. <laughs> Boy, does that game have an awesome soundtrack. I don't suppose, Brandon, you've played the, either the original Nintendo or the remade for modern systems DuckTales game. Yeah, I actually have played the, the remastered version on my uh, PS3. Oh, super cool. What did you think? Yeah. Oh, it was it was very good, very funny. Um, I liked the uh, uh, the voice acting was uh, was a nice touch uh, that they brought back. Uh, I guess some of the original voice uh, voice actors, I think. Anyways, yeah, you're right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember uh, seeing ads, I think, in like Game Pro magazine or something like that for the original Ducktales. Uh, but I'm not sure I ever played it back in the NES days. Hmm. Uh, but I've seen it you know, around. Uh, so playing it, the remastered version was, uh, was a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Well, I had high hopes for the remastered one. Somehow it kind of didn't do it for me. I played the original NES version like to death cause it was mm-hmm. my very first Nintendo game that I owned. We'd been oh, renting. Really? Yeah. We had been renting the system and games for at least several months before owning it. But, uh, DuckTales in addition to Super Mario Brothers was the first one we ever owned, and I love that game, and I knew probably not all the secrets, but a whole lot of them. Right, right. And somehow the remake, I I found it kind of exhausting with all the the talking and the storytelling and the all of that. I I, yep. I don't know. It, it's I felt like it kind of got in the way of the game. But what I liked about that game most of all was the soundtrack. Yes, which was phenomenal because they more than pay homage to the the original soundtrack. They like kind of match it note for note, and then kind of embellish it a little bit. At the end of last week's podcast, I played the Transylvania NES song followed by the remastered one, which is this like ridiculous electronic, like electric guitar dubstep kind of a remix remix of it, which is just amazing, very creative. So, as uh, as uh, you say, Brandon, our uh, loyal listener, the Space Quest historian Trolls says, yes, it's the original voice cast in DuckTales Remastered. The Scrooge actor was 94 years old when he recorded it, and the Magicka Dispel voice er, dis, uh, voice actor was 96 years old. Damn. Wow. That's amazing. That's yeah, really for amazing. sure. And they sounded just right. Yep, they sounded pretty good. Pretty darn impressive. So yep. that's super cool. And of course, we want to give a, a gigantic shout out to uh, the Space Quest Historian for uh, restarting his uh, Space Quest Historian podcast. He's on season three now. I think he just put out his second episode of that. So we will gladly put a link to that fantastic podcast in our show notes. Uh, last thing. <laughs> hey, dear, I believe you are best qualified to speak about the last extremely quizzical uh. item. Before we talk about what we played this week, <sighs> yay! More parrot parrot shenanigans. Yeah. So this week I was perplexed by a type by some of Joey's behaviors, but it wasn't like bad behavior. It was just very confusing bird behavior. <laughs> yes, I'm talking about you, parrot butt. But <laughs> literally, jeez. <laughs> there, she's had her two cents. So I decided to look up. Just a general synopsis on Tanya behavior because I wasn't concerned about her health, but I just wanted to, you know, for my own sanity, know what this meant. So she has this habit now of backing up into my arm, lifting my ass, squatching her body up, and putting her tail straight in the air. Yeah, so, just kind of sitting on her arm. Yeah, with her ass pressing into her arm. Turns out this backing up and pressing her ass into our, our, our arm means that she really likes us. 
I'm going to let her out because she's having a... A, a squawkathon? Yeah. Okay. You're gorgeous. Hi, baby. Yeah, so she's being let out now. and. Oh, nice. Come here, Stinky. Because we didn't want her out of because she started biting the cable of this really awesome microphone that we have. Thanks again, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Right, so... Thanks, Joe. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so you labeled this uh, talking point the quote-unquote cloaca backups. <laughs> Oh, she just typed on my keyboard. She typed T-U-T-Y. Tootie. Tootie. Hey, Tootie. I'm yeah. like, where did Tootie come from? <laughs> well, that's, that was basically your uh, your pet name for first-person shooters for the for the benefit of the birdie, which you refer to as... Rudy Tootie Shooty. <laughs> that's right, because whenever, whenever Baby Bird over here hears us playing shooting games, she kind of goes ape, ape shit. Mm-hmm. She loves that. Yeah, she loves the noise. Radio. All right. So why don't we move into what we've talked played this week? Why don't we do that? So Brandon, do you play any games? Well, you, if you, if so, have you played anything interesting this week? Uh, what did I play this week? Um, well, as uh, as Brian mentioned earlier, um, or did he mention? No, that was that was before we started recording. I guess the yeah. uh, uh, my interest in Dungeons and Dragons and yes. other tabletop role playing games. Uh, so I did actually I did actually play uh, some D and I think on the weekend. Um, so I guess that counts. Oh, you so bet it does. Who's your dice, uh, uh, who's your character? Um, uh, he is a uh, level three fighter. I want to say mm-hmm. I don't have his sheet in front of me, but uh, he uh, I think his name is Kron. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he just basically stabs things repeatedly and takes loot, as most fighters do. That's what life is all about. Yep. Stab and loot. <laughs> That's right. Seriously, someone should make a game called Stab and Loot. Yeah, I guess so. That kind of cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, that might be a little too on the nose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It's the uh, we've been playing the the fifth. I guess it's fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. So the newest uh, the newest effort. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's a pretty good system so far. I'm enjoying it. Oh, that's cool. I, I don't know too much about it because I'm pretty out of that loop. But I've heard that the fifth edition kind of. Uh, is inspired by video game design in some ways, like massively multiplayer game design, just in the mm-hmm. progression and the combat. And yeah, so- that was kind of a trend I think that started with the the previous edition was very much informed by uh, some of those MMOs, which ironically I think took inspiration from D and D in the first place. So very they're kind of so. stuck in a loop. Yeah, well, it's nice uh, that they can improve each other. It's, uh, yeah. Better than one or the other being stubborn and never improving. That's right. Yeah, so it's a symbiotic relationship. Ooh, there you are yeah, with I the think so. $30 words again. <laughs> yeah, and then, I'm sorry uh, if, my video... vocabulary, if my verbiage is too expensive for your uh, penny-pinching wallet. Maximum wordulation. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, so yeah. that's cool. So you play with friends? Uh, yeah, we've got a, a couple of friends who come over, and uh, my wife and I play uh, together, so... Um, it's kind of like a couple's, uh, couple's thing. Oh, I'm super jealous. We would yeah. do that if we had such an arrangement, wouldn't we? Yep. Alas, you were at least a hundred kilometers from us, aren't you? Uh, yeah, about that. Yep. Yeah. That's As the crow flies or drives along the 401. <laughs> that's right. Oh, so that's cool. Any, uh, anything else that you played recently? Uh, video game wise, um, I booted up uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World for the first time in a little while. Oh, I never played uh, that, but I read the books and I saw the movie. Uh, it's very amusing. Yeah, the yeah. It, I mean, the the game bad. is a side-scrolling beat-em-up, so it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's like um, old-school pixely, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Very, uh, and, the, and the soundtrack is very 
uh, chip tuny and and whatnot. So it's uh, it's pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then cool. uh, I may or may not have fired up my uh, old Sega Game Gear. Oh, and, awesome! Uh, played around with some with some really old games. Oh, super cool! Bianca has one of those. No, I didn't have one of those. I played with one, but I didn't have one. Oh, your cousin had it. Yeah, my cousin had it. Oh, you had a Game Boy. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, the Game Gear eats batteries like nobody's business. So it sure does. It, but it's not uh, not very cost effective to play. But I've got this adapter that lets me play uh, Sega Master System games on the the Game Gear. Whoa! Yeah, so it's kind of neat. So I played some you know Golden Axe and Double Dragon and whatnot. I didn't even know they made Golden Axe for the Master System. Yeah, I think cool. so. Let's see. I got it. I think I got it right here. Those are both great games. Yep. Golden Axe. That was one of my favorites. Oh, fantastic! And then of course Altered Beast. Oh yeah. Oh, that, yeah. was that for the Master System too, or the Game yep. Gear itself? Oh. It was. A, it was a Master System game. Oh neat! Yeah. I think that was. Was that the launch game for the Genesis? It was a very early game for the Genesis, anyway. Yeah, I think it was one of the games that was bundled with one of those systems. Mm-hmm. That you could go. I, I was always an, uh, more of an NES guy when I was uh, when I was younger, but uh, Me too. Sega Sega was cool too. Yeah. Oh. Them's fighting words to some. But once again, I know, I know. We're all about the love around here, I guess. Yeah, I loved both Sega and Nintendo, so mm-hmm. I had both. I had the best of both worlds. So that, so I'm a, I'm the bastard child here, the one who loved both. And was like, how can you say that? I have a feeling much of our audience is gonna be cool with both sides of that, friends. Yeah, in the uh, during the Super NES and Genesis days, uh, you know, a couple of my friends had the 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 Super NES, and and then a couple had the the uh, Genesis, and it was always funny when a game would come out on both systems because mm-hmm. you would you would obviously compare um, compare versions. And the one that was really uh, night and day to me was uh, uh, the Disney's Aladdin game. Oh, so much so, totally different was, game. Mm-hmm. Was amazing on the Genesis, and then the, the Super NES version was kind of like, eh, all right. Oh, I so. own the Super Nintendo one. I really like that. It was more of like a platforming jumping game than a combat yeah. game. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it was very different. Yeah, I thought, to that effect, I thought the Super Nintendo one was a little bit closer to the movie it was based on. It was weird chopping people with a sword in a Disney game. That's a peculiar Yeah, I guess thing. that's true, too. <laughs> it's been many, many a year since I thought of that. But sure. Uh, it was, it's a beautiful game, though. That Genesis one, the animation and the art are incredible. Yeah, I think that's what, that's what I recall most of all, the art. The art definitely. Oh, yeah. Well, good stuff. Well, dear, do you want to tell us about what you played recently? Okay, well, we'll start off with uh, saying that... Um, <sighs> I finally finished Life is Strange, episode five. Mm-hmm. Oh boy! And I got to see you. <laughs> I got to see you restart your chapter over and over and over and listen to the same dialogues repeatedly. That was fun. That was only one chapter, and then. Hey, didn't you do it like twice? I heard a lot of the same, <laughs> same dialogue. Because I fucked up something that uh, made me, uh, and I didn't. And I uh, quit when I thought I saw a save icon, but I fair didn't. enough. Not too bad. It's one of those, it saves when you see this icon, don't quit while it's on, going. I'm like, okay, the icon disappeared, I can quit now. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, I lost progress. And, of course, you got to listen to me curse and swear as I snuck around the lights, but I did make it through. Every time you play a game, I get to hear you curse and swear. <laughs> yeah, well, some more than others. This is true. And, of course, this is the game, of course, what game is not, what story which game is not complete without, you know, the ultimate sacrifice at the end? You do this or this. Mm-hmm. He must choose whether his friend lives or dies. His best friend's a pie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I won't. T- I won't tell you what the choice are. If you, you happy play- with it though? 
Yes. It was worthwhile. It was a, a satisfying payoff after all that time put into it. Yes, especially now that I've I re, I played it through and I realized that having played through it, some of the choices I made in the past, I could see where it could have gone really different. Mm-hmm. And now I'd love to see what happens if I made a different choice at the end. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I look forward to hearing the whole thing again. <laughs> all right. What else did you play? I also played Techno Babylon, and I managed to uh, screw myself over. Well, it wasn't entirely your fault. True. You seem to be having a bit of a tough time with the idiosyncrasies of playing that game on Steam. Yeah, for some reason, if you bring up the Steam overlay to look up something, it was making my... Uh, it kept glitching out the uh, text boxes that would appear. Not the dialogues, but the text boxes that would appear... <laughs> When you tried to read something, so I had, so I inevitably had it uh, like flash a text box without me even being able to read anything, and I'd have to quit and come back in. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there's a maximum number of saves. So I'm trying to save at major points just in case I mess something up. Mm-hmm. And apparently, I messed up something big enough that I couldn't figure out how to proceed. Yeah, that was interesting. We thought it was a bug, but then when we looked it up. Uh, it was Dave Gilbert, uh, the uh, president, would you say, the founder of Wild Jedi Games himself, who addressed it and said that he he encountered the same thing in testing and was sure it was a bug, but then found out that his uh, game designer was so thoughtful that he actually came up with a way to get out of that. But sadly, you had already inadvertently deleted your save game there, so you have to replay some stuff. Yeah, and I think I didn't delete it. No, I think it got overwritten. My same game got overwritten. That's why I say you inadvertently deleted it. Yeah, because I had used a unique file name. Like right now, I was at save 51 dash the current time on my computer. Mm. I'm like, hmm, I don't want to. And I'm like, hmm, this seems to be overwriting itself. Let's make, let's rename it to save52a. I'm Mm -hmm. like, because I know that they're not using like the number, like a letter after the number. So I thought, it's a unique save. What could go wrong? And apparently, my save got deleted. Yeah, that's really peculiar. Yes. So it, perhaps there's a limit of 50 saves or something for that game engine. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. But we we learned that at least for Techno Babylon and perhaps for other AGS engine games or maybe just Wadjadai games, you can press Control-T at the main menu, which turns on some debugging feature that lets you skip to whatever chapter you want. Yeah, so I skipped ahead to where I was, and I uh, resumed my piddling along with uh, Dr. Regis. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, you're going to enjoy the end of that game. That was a really good game. I really want to get to the end. I'm really enjoying it so far. You will. Quit biting my wedding ring, you brat, brat bird. <laughs> Little brat. All right. Is that all you played this week? And, of course, you played a bit of Diablo starting on a new season. Oh, yeah, that's right. We put we put 15 or 20 minutes into the into Diablo again. That's a fun one. That's a fun couples game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of speaking of the the uh, Dungeons and Dragons oh, yeah. style yeah, smashing sure. around, yeah, that's very much uh, that's that's pretty. What do you call it? Stab and grab, stab and loot. Yeah, stab and loot. There you go. Well, mine rhymes. Oh, look, oh yeah, st- actually, stab and grab works very well. Ooh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so me, I uh, I finished Leisure Suit Larry three last weekend. Oh, it's, the end is so meta. It's very meta. It's it's. Uh, the, the the folks on the Blue Cup Tools podcast, hello, Ben and Francisco, they mentioned how, like, gingerly and carefully you have to be if you're going to break the third wall. Fourth, uh, fourth wall. wall. Fourth wall. Thank you. Um, so, Larry 3 is not really uh, careful at all in doing that, but I think it gets a pass for being as old as it is, for being a sequel that doesn't really break the fourth wall until that point, as far as I can remember. 
Although in Legion of Larry 2, you do have like a a, a 50-gallon uh, cup of soft drink that you squeeze into your pocket with a really funny animation. So I guess that was also kind of <laughs> fourth wall breaking. But some, something tells me that that game gets a pass for not insulting the intelligence of the player by breaking the fourth wall. So it's a silly game. Um, but it's probably my favorite Leisure Suit Larry game. I had a really good time playing that again. I love the writing. Um, Is it the one with the pineapple puzzle, or am I thinking of a different puzzle? Pineapple puzzle. You know, walking through the maze, was it the pineapple? Oh, Nectarines? Yeah. Yes, that's the one that Bianca helped me with. There's a song in the manual about Nectarines, and the first letter of... Sorry, I'm spoiling the puzzle. The first letter of every word in the song is N-E-W or S. So you follow the song, you walk in the direction of each the first letter of the word, the next word in the song, and that's how you get through this big bamboo maze. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was pretty silly. So it's a whole, it's a song from like the the Nectarine Enjoyment Board of, I don't know, it's really silly. That, that's a game that relies more than most on the manual. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that's a copy protection kind of a thing, knowing Sierra and their methodology, but... Uh, and that's a good, and that's interesting copy protection because it doesn't make the game unplayable. It is. Well, that kind of harkens back to earlier day games like the text adventures by Infocom that relied on the so-called feelies, the objects that you get inside the box. I had a game called Wishbringer, which comes with an envelope, a sealed envelope, and it says, don't open this until it tells you to open it in the game. And that happens in the first five minutes of the game, where a postman knocks on your door and gives you this mysterious letter, and then you have to actually open the letter that comes in the box and read it yourself. It doesn't tell you in the game what to do. So that's just a really cool kind of a tactile thing. It's an example where a text adventure can actually be more realistic in a certain way than more modern games because it actually comes with a physical object. Oh, that's funny. I seem to recall uh, like uh, decoder wheels or something like that being put in old games. You'd have to work out a code or something based on uh, something in the game. And if you, didn't, if you couldn't put it in, then, of course, you must have pirated it. Yeah, that's right. Although uh, we, we we found our ways. We, uh, mm-hmm. My friends who uh, had games with coder wheels, they would uh, pull the two pieces of cardboard apart and we would photocopy both of, of those course. and cut the little holes in it or hold them up to the lamp and twist it around awkwardly and get it wrong the first two times and finally get it right. So we we, we were persevering. That's funny. Well, yeah, I'm in favor of piracy if it, if it requires a lot of effort. Exactly. <laughs> so what else did I play? Um, the only other one I will mention is a game that I was invited to the beta called RuneScape Idle Adventures. It's made, it's the next game coming out by the guys who made... Adventure Capitalist? Adventure Capitalist, which is this very silly, weird, pointless, very pointless kind of idle game where all you do is click buttons to make progress bars move a little bit faster, and you do that for literally months or years. So I, I poked that once a day. And that's a fun game that takes like 30 seconds to play. So they're coming out with another game, and it's kind of fun. It's got a few bugs, but it takes place in the RuneScape uh, world. I never was never really a player of RuneScape, so I don't understand any uh, references or anything like that. But uh, mechanics-wise, it seems like it's going to be an engaging little game, and it's not too dissimilar from Adventure Capitalist. It's all about uh, progress bars once again. So if you like kind of spreadsheet sort of tweaking games, then uh, take a look for RuneScape Idle Adventures. All right. So I think that will do it. Um, so uh, let's get on to our main topic, which is the rave scene. And I think uh, Brendan and I are going to probably speak more centrally around the Toronto rave scene. That's that's the bulk of your experience, is it not? Uh, well, I mean, I, I 
partied a lot in uh, in Kitchener, uh, but oh, yeah. uh, definitely Toronto was uh, was the place to be. Oh yeah, Kitchener, Waterloo, and Hamilton and that kind of area also yeah. had a lot going on. Yeah, they did. Right. So uh, before we uh, engage in that conversation, we have two voicemails. Uh, the first one is from our dear friend Joe Mastriani. So why don't I go ahead and hey Brian, hey Bianca, Ooh. Joe here. There it goes. And uh, <laughs> wow, you guys are going to talk about the uh, the rave scene this week, and uh, that is really really cool. Um, back in the day, I guess around for me probably ninety nine, maybe two thousand to two thousand three ish. I was. Uh, I won't necessarily say I was super into the rave scene, but I was, you know, an aficionado and whatever. And, um, you know, I've, I went to a couple of events, you know, the kind of the the smaller, uh, you know, kind of church basement sort of uh, warehouse type type raves. I've been to a few of those, but I also frequented uh, Sona After Hours Club in Montreal quite a bit. And uh, I have a lot of stories from there. And maybe the next time we hang out in person, I can t- tell you some of those because, frankly, I don't know if a lot of them are... Um, are suitable for uh, for public uh, consumption, <laughs> but I did want to tell you kind of one one little factoid because we were talking back and forth on Twitter, and I, I mentioned this stuff, and uh, you mentioned DJ Lafleche and DJ Tiga, and uh, those are two guys that uh, I guess Sona was kind of their home club, so I saw them, I, I listened to them spin quite often, and I always thought uh, Tiga was interesting, just from uh, the perspective of how he, he chose his uh, his DJ name or whatever you want to say. So Tiga was actually, or is, I don't think he, he's not dead, but <laughs> Tiga is a, a smaller guy, and um, that's where his name sort of comes from. So if you say his name in French, he's DJ Tiga, which uh, is sort of kind of a, a contraction of... Uh, Putziga, which is basically how you say small guy in um, in French. So, uh, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of cool. So, looking forward to all the stuff you guys have to talk about. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of cool acts. I remember, uh, you know, Celebration 2000, you know, kind of the uh, 1990, the Millennium. Or no, it was the year after the Millennium. It was 2000 to 2001. I was at, uh, you know, one of the big 514 Productions raves uh, at the the Molson Center at the time, now the Bell Center, and, you know, I saw Mistress Barbara and a bunch of other cool people like that, and, uh, you know, I've seen Tiesto, which was super incredible, John Digweed, and, uh, you know, just uh, a lot of really cool memories, a lot of great music, and a lot of uh, time spent sitting in dark rooms listening to awesome music, so looking forward to it, guys. Keep keep it up, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, awesome. Thank you very much, Joe, for that voicemail. Yeah, it was cool. A lot of uh, a lot of names there that he mentioned uh, strike a chord with me. I saw Mistress Barbara a few times. She's Canadian, isn't she? Is she from Montreal? Uh, I believe so. Yes. She is a phenomenally talented techno DJ. I love her stuff. I'm really like picky and snobby when it comes to techno, and mm-hmm. she like she is like firing on all cylinders. As far as I'm concerned, she's phenomenal. Yeah, I have I, I have a uh, Mistress Barbara cassette that our mixtape that I really uh, do enjoy. You have quite the collection of mixtapes, do you not? Yeah, somewhere north of 500. Wow, that is extremely impressive. Yeah, it was. It's kind of a, uh, I would say, a bit of an obsession, um, especially because uh, I, I, you know, was listening to the music from the, from the rave scene uh, for a good, you know, two years before I I managed to get to a party myself. Me so too. the music was kind of the 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 window into. 
the scene. And so the tapes were sort of the window to the music because you couldn't exactly go down to, um, you know, Sunrise Records or something and, and buy the stuff that they were playing in these warehouses, at least not initially. Very true. Yeah. So the tape, the tape thing is, uh, um, I do enjoy collecting, even, even though tapes, of course, have fallen by the wayside. And so have mixed CDs, I guess, too, considering that everything's now uh, just sort of digital. But uh, um, I, got, I have a, a bit of a collection, yeah. Well, that's very, very impressive. You ever, you ever daydream about converting that uh, analog media into something digital? Well, it, it's a daydream that I think quickly turns into a nightmare when I think about the amount of time I'd have to spend, uh, you know, in front of uh, the dual cassette deck and Audacity or whatever program I'd end up using. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to. I it would it would take uh, quite a lot of time, I think, to rip all of those uh, all those tapes. Uh, and quite a few of them, I think, are probably available already. So maybe I'd have to uh, check to see which ones are already circulating online, and then just pare down uh, from there. Uh, if I were to do it, but uh, I did I did rip a few tapes uh, um, at the request of an old DJ friend of mine uh, a while ago. So it's uh, it might be something that I keep doing. Oh, that's cool. Using a dual uh, dual tape deck does not seem it seems like a lot of work. But then you had your uh, one that you plugged into your computer directly. Your uh, it looked like an old school Walkman, but it uh, plugged directly into your computer. Oh man, yeah. See, I, I, I will definitely echo your statements that it really is a nightmare to rip tapes. I mean, if it's a sixty-minute tape, it's going to take you sixty minutes to record it. If it's a yeah, ninety-minute exactly. tape, it takes ninety minutes to record it. There's no two ways about it. It's ripping at one time speed. That's right, and so you yeah. basically have to dedicate your computer to the task. You don't want your computer making noise or getting busy and skipping over something. That's so. right. I guess there's no high speed dubbing when it comes to recording uh, from a cassette to uh, to your hard drive. Probably, yeah, no, not not in any decent way. That's right. So I bought this little Walkman sort of a thing that plugged in via USB to my computer, which at least has its own little isolated sound chip on it. But oh yeah, this little Walkman just like strips away all the bass up to like. I don't know, probably 90 hertz or 100 hertz or something. Oh. So for rave tapes, that is just a non-starter. Yeah, that's no good. So at least I only paid 20 bucks for the thing. It would have been awesome if that were a quick fix, but I haven't found any shortcut to doing it with any sort of quality, so that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, mixtapes, um, I, I had someone email me out of the blue, which happens every now and then, someone... Uh, thanking me for my mixtape website, mixtapes.demodulated.com. I'll stick a link to that in the show notes for those of you who haven't seen that. Um, That's a website where I very lazily, and not for years, I was ripping a bunch of my uh, cassette tapes to MP3s and hosting them online for free and, uh, you know, just trying to give credit where credit's due and not, uh, uh, you know, trying to be gracious about it. I'll take them down if anyone has a problem with it, but I've had DJs email me as well thanking me for putting it up there, which is cool. Um, so a very nice guy by the name of Will, uh, emailed me and he and I got into a bit of a chat and, uh, turns out he's like a music producer and he owns record labels and a clothing line and, uh, a bunch of other stuff too. He's a super interesting guy and he's from uh, Michigan. So he has his own take on, uh, the rave scene and all of that, even though geographically is pretty nearby. Um, so I asked Will, just uh, out of the blue, would he be interested in sending us uh, a bit of a voicemail or a letter or something? And man, did he deliver. Uh, Will sent us something like a 35-minute voicemail, which is just bonkers. I cannot express how appreciative I am that someone would take so much time and be so thorough and thoughtful to leave such an amazing uh, thing for us, uh, for, for a complete stranger that he met a week ago. That's really damn cool. 
it's clearly a, a topic that he's passionate about, as are Brandon and I. So I took a 90-second or so excerpt from that voicemail, and I will put a link to download the whole thing for those that are interested. I most certainly am going to listen to the whole thing uh, this week uh, as I commute. So why don't I go ahead and put this excerpt on? I thought, uh, just skipping through, that this was kind of a, a poignant point that he made about uh, rave culture. So uh, take it away, Mr. Will. Oh, 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 did I screw up my recording? There's no sound? That's stupid. How in the world did I manage to record a minute and a half of silence? Let me try that again. Did I screw that up? Of course you did. Ask this wonder. Damn it. Okay. That's what you get for having no ass. You have a condition where you have no butt. Apparently I have no butt, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yep, you're an assless wonder. Shoot, that sucks, man. I, I like, skipped through it and I found this really great point. Okay, well, Will, I can't apologize enough. That's ridiculous. That is freaking ridiculous. Well, I know better. I'm recording with Audacity now, and I know better than to start looking through files in Audacity while recording. Because <laughs> we're going to lose a, a lot of progress if you do that. Yeah. Okay, where are we at? We're at 34 minutes. I'm going to... Uh, I'll stick that in in post-production. Okay. 34 minutes. Excerpt. Sorry, dude. Damn, that's stupid. All right, well, I will make it up, and I'll, I'll put that little excerpt in there. Uh, uh, yeah, rave music, electronic music, man. It's it's so versatile. There's a million different kinds, and there's gonna be a million. There's gonna be a billion different kinds, and that's that's beautiful. And when people come together and uh, uh, are on the same groove, man, that's beautiful, you know. And we uh, 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 really need to keep that plur alive, you know. Emphasize that shit. Uh, and stay experimental, uh, be scientists of, be lifestyle scientists, be scientists of, of culture, uh, consume, I, excuse, excuse me, excuse me, produce, don't just consume, produce, uh, you want to get into something, do it, try it, try it, if you fail, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, try it, uh, Rave culture is really, honestly, it, it's a catalyst to all sorts of things. So I'm sorry that we can't discuss it now. We'll have to listen to it afterwards. Well, now I'm looking forward to hearing it. As you should. Stop it's... fighting that. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> all right. Well, what the heck? Why don't we? Uh, why don't you and I go ahead then and uh, get started on our conversation? So. Sure. Um, I don't know. Why don't we start at the beginning? Can you tell us about how uh, you, you you mentioned that you uh, got started listening to uh, tapes, and that was kind of your introduction to the rave scene, and my story is pretty similar to that. So what kind of stuff were you listening to that got you interested in participating in a greater capacity? Well, it's it's somewhat embarrassing now, uh, but it uh, it was the uh, Chris Shepard uh, Techno Trip series. Me too. Uh, I don't know if you remember. Of course <laughs> okay, I do. Anyway. I have them on tape and CD. Yep, I, I think I still have my tape around, and that would have been what 1992. Wow! And so I hear, you know, it was a sort of a, a a revelation, I guess, to a guy who was otherwise listening to, um, you know, Ice T and Public Enemy, like any other suburban white boy, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> so 
this tape, I mean, this girl let me listen to it on the bus one day. I, I forget. It was a you know school bus situation. And I was like, what is this? So, uh, you know, ran out to the local uh, uh, music store at the mall and, and grabbed a, a copy for myself. And so I guess that was uh, that was sort of how it started. Uh, obviously, there was a bit of a gulf between uh, what you know tunes Chris Shepard was selecting for his compilations and what was actually you know sort of the state of uh, the state of the art. But there were some good there were some good tunes in there. Like I, I think there was stuff by Richie Houghton even on the first one, hmm. and uh, under under various uh, you know various pseudonyms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that led me to you know sort of like cheesy stuff like L.A. style, um, oh, yeah. and. Uh, there, I, I did go out and buy uh, a tape. It was like the best of the UK illegal rave scene or something like that. Hmm. Um, you know, put out by by Quality Records from, of course. from Toronto. So, I'm, again, not sure how legit it was, but uh, that was sort of uh, the beginning. Um, uh, before I really knew what a rave was and and uh, what type of music was being featured. Hmm. Um, but from there, you know, one day I was in. Uh, I guess I was in uh, my grade 10 computer class and uh, the girl sitting next to me hands me hands me this flyer. And, you know, I was like, what is this? And she's like, it's a flyer for a rave. And I was like, a a what? You know, like, what what is this? And this was about this was like the spring of 93. Hmm. And so suddenly I had this this, you know, actual physical, you know, connection between the the music I was starting to listen to and the actual parties that were featuring, uh, you know, featuring the music. So I studied this this flyer and I was trying to figure out, you know, the fact that there were all these different DJs playing and and uh, and that sort of thing. So that sort of got me closer, I think, to uh, what the scene was actually was actually about than the tapes that I was buying at, <laughs> at my my corner uh, corner music store. Oh, sure. I guess that kind of echoes uh, the thing I was saying about the Infocom games that come with the feelies, the things inside the box that bring you right. one step closer. Oh, yeah, that's exactly. Really cool. So, did you end up going to that one, or was that just kind of a, your your indication that well, this scene existed? You know, I was about uh, gosh, how old would I have been? Fifteen. Mm. So, uh, and this was a party in Toronto ah. called Trip to the Moon. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, there was really I had no there was no way of me getting getting down there. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have my driver's license yet, and uh, I was turning sixteen that summer, so. Uh, it was just kind of like you know this this uh, a ticket to 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 something that I wasn't going to be able to capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, from there, I ended up um, going to uh, uh, I was I was playing in an orchestra at the time, actually trombone, and uh, we did a tour of Europe that summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were going from you know from gig to gig. Uh, we would have time for shopping and stuff like that. And I went to a, a record store and I found all these uh, trance music compilations. Like uh, uh, I think one was called Trance Master and uh, World of Trance and Tour de Trance, which is kind of a, a bit of a pun there. Mm. And um, So you so got started, to the trance? <laughs> yeah. And uh, Oh, Buddha Trance, that was another one. So I started buying mm. these trance uh, compilations and, and I could sort of make the link between uh, what I was hearing on, uh, oh, I, I forgot, like Energy 108, of course, would have been a big uh, stepping stone, too, uh, on the radio. Oh, yeah, that's uh, where Chris Shepard played. Yeah, and uh, and um, a little bit later, I guess, Dr. Trance. But uh, so you, you did hear some dance music there as well as these uh, as these tapes. But anyhow, so this trance stuff, I really started getting into. 
Uh, and that was around the time that uh, I think that the one record, The Age of Love, came out or whatever, and everybody was was uh, was listening to that and, and really enjoying it. So oh, yeah. I started tune. buying up these these trance CDs left, right, and center, um, sort of adding to this musical uh, collect, you know collection and this connection to these raves or, or parties or whatever. And then we were in Sweden and uh, we were billeted out to somebody's house and they said that they were going to this uh, this party. So I was like, uh, sign me up. So we went to this, uh, we were in um, Gothenburg, Sweden, and uh, we ended up going to this amusement park where this huge, uh, I guess, I mean, it might have been a rave or it could have been just a nightclub or something, but there was this huge party going on. And uh, eventually I found myself in this arena um, and just, you know, this pounding, pounding music. And uh, I think it was JD's uh, Plastic Dreams was playing. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, so this is what it's all about. Hmm. Um, so actually, you know, eventually... So it took me it took me a little while, but the getting on the dance floor um, far enough away from my parents where that's, you know, where, where I could get away with it, I suppose. <laughs> um, I had to go to Europe to uh, <laughs> to safely uh, to safely dance without being discovered. But uh, that was kind of like the briefest sort of taste, um, the taste of that, because then when I when I came back home, it was kind of like, well, we didn't really have these, you know, giant parties that I could uh, that I could find in my backyard. So. Mm -hmm. That's but, uh, yeah, so that's, so that's sort of how it started. Oh, that's a great story. In Sweden, of all places, was your yeah. first real taste. Wow. So my mine uh, it does it starts out not too dissimilar. Um, I I would have been in grade ten as well, I suppose. A uh, school friend of mine, Noshad, he gave me a copy of Chris Shepard's Pirate Radio Sessions Volume One. Oh yeah, which was uh, like a house uh, compilation, a very good one. Um, it uh, I listened to that. I listened to that tape until I, like, literally wore it thin. I loved it so, so, so much. And I believe it had an Energy 108 logo on the front, and so I started listening. Was it on Friday nights? Uh, his, yeah, that sounds about right. I think it was his pirate radio sessions radio show from uh, the RPM Club. Yep. Which later on became the warehouse, and then it became uh, government, and now it's going to be condos. Yes, of course, as, as, as everything else does. As everything else in Toronto, that's right. Yeah. Um, I loved his selections. He was never like the world's most technically proficient DJ, but he no. had connections and he had an ear for good music. Um, he, I believe he DJed under his own name and also under a pseudonym, Dog Whistle. Yes, I used to have a Dog Whistle t-shirt. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I have a CD of his and I really loved that CD. It was a little bit more underground. Yes. And for some reason, the last song started skipping a bunch after listening to it for like three years nonstop and... When I ripped my CD to MP3, sadly, that last song is, or the last two songs or so, skipped like crazy. So that's yep. too bad. Um, I think I'm looking at that Dog Whistle CD right now. Oh, too cool. Um, so I listened to that all the time. Um, I played it for my friends. They were a lot into the music as well, but none of us were aware of the rave scene still. Right. Um, we started to frequent some nightclubs. The first nightclub we ever went to was in Aurora, Ontario, about uh, 20 or 30 minutes north of uh, where we live, which was already north of Toronto. And it was situated, like, right on top of a bowling alley, which is so lame. That's <laughs> oh, man. Weird. Awesome. But it was, it was pretty swanky inside. It was just a ridiculous location for it and a very odd combination of people in the parking lot, let me tell you. So... Um, we had a good time. We had a good time dancing around. It took us a while to kind of uh, get up our, our courage as well before we uh, danced. And then we checked out a few different nightclubs. And uh, I figured, like, that was it. That's what you did if you wanted to hear this music mm -hmm. while it was being performed. But I think I must have been handed a flyer at one of those nightclubs. 
uh, for a rave. One or two of them, I suppose. I looked at them for a while and I figured out one way or another exactly what they were and what was going on. Um, and uh, uh, one and two friends of mine agreed to buy tickets and uh, go with me to our first rave. It was Destiny 16 uh, in about October 96. Okay, yep. Um, so we bought the tickets. And I think a day before we were going to go, we were all like kind of, you know, we were excited and nervous and all that kind of stuff. Didn't know exactly mm-hmm. what we were getting ourselves into. One of my friends chickened out. He just said, I don't want to do this. So he <laughs> gave he gave his ticket to me and I don't think we ever did anything with it. Um, my other friend and I, we went together. We had a phenomenally good time. Uh, it was in this old like abandoned supermarket. Um, it was in like, yeah, this like husk, this shell of a supermarket. Oh, crazy. So it was mostly emptied out. Um, it was split into two by, I think, not much more than this gigantic curtain or something like that. And in one room, it was Trance. In the other room, I think it was Funky Breaks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was there? John Double O Fleming was the name of the DJ. That right. I, Where that the I, hell do these people come up with these names? I don't know. In England, in his case. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a phenomenally good time at this, at this thing. Uh, the biggest difference that I found between the club scene that I was used to and the rave was in clubs people kind of paired off and would dance with each other for the most part. Right. Whereas at a rave, kind of like a concert, there were hundreds and hundreds of people and they were all facing forward toward the DJ on the stage. Like they were kind of part of the same thing and they were aware of each other, but they didn't necessarily acknowledge each other. They're all just kind of doing their own thing. And that was something that ended up being, you know, a a really important characteristic of raves versus other uh, uh, nightclubs in that whole scene. So... That was just a very cool venue um, where there used to be, I guess, like a butcher counter or something like that. It was hollowed out and emptied. And so in there they had a little chill out room with couches and a screen oh, yes. and a guy with like uh, psychedelic geometric fractal kind of uh, art being projected onto the wall. Um, there was another uh, another little uh, shelled out of things where the bakery would have been. There was a guy selling mixtapes and T-shirts and stuff like that. Right. I, I bought a tape with my meager scrimpings. As a high school student at the time, I bought yeah. Stop jo- me. I bought a Josh Wink mixtape there that I have uh, ripped onto my uh, uh, onto my website. It's one oh, that cool. I just listened to a little while ago. So that was the story, I guess, of my my first rave. It all started off with someone handing me a mixtape, and that's just such an important aspect of that culture. Not just sharing the music with each other, but going out of your way to dub the tape, which, as we cool. mentioned, takes a good forty five minutes, or you know, sixty minutes, or an hour, or, or uh, an hour and a half. And actually handing it to someone, the one and only copy. That's right. Else. It was an important well, thing for someone to do. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, I thought I had a handle on, on what was going on at, at raves. Like, it, I thought it was all sort of four on the floor, uh, trance music or house music or whatever. Like, like you'd see on those on those uh, compilation tapes. And then one day I was in uh, oh, math class. And uh, I I'd started to see, you know, around my, my high school, like, you know, I kind of knew that there were these raver kids, right? They kind of looked like... They, they were kind of dressed like skateboarders, only their pants were a little wider, you know? <laughs> yep. And, uh, and it, it, that, that, that whole fashion thing hadn't quite codified yet, but I, I did know that there were, like, there were clubbers and there were housers and there were uh, ravers, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my friends was, was listening to a Walkman in, in math class, and, and uh, he gave me one of the, the earbuds, and I put it in, and it was this, you know, uh, it, well, it was, it was a tape from... Uh, a, a renegades party in Toronto. Um, it was uh, Jumping Jack Frost, oh. so it was it was Jungle, mm-hmm. and this was sort of my in, my introduction to, to that style of music. And I was like, "What the heck is this?" Because there was this guy who was shouting, 
you know, while the music was playing. And I was like, is that like the DJ? Because I thought it was maybe Chris Shepard that, you know, how he would talk over his own, talking over his own music. And he goes, oh, no, 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 that, that's an MC. And I was like, an MC? Wait a minute. Like, I, I really had no, you know, no clue what was going on. But uh, he let me dub this tape. Um, and that was sort of the first, uh, my first introduction to, to Jungle. And uh, because that was sort of all, you know, uh, that was where Toronto was headed. It had a huge, a huge jungle scene, even in, in I guess this was 94. Mm -hmm. um, so I immediately, I was like, I have to, I have to figure this out. I have to go uh, to a jungle party because this was like nothing I'd ever, nothing I'd ever heard before. Even the UK rave tape was kind of like, was more breakbeaty. Like it wasn't, uh, the, the, it was sort of this pre-jungle, the breakbeat hardcore sound. Yeah, right. A little slower. Um, yeah, so I rushed out to uh, my local Ticketmaster outlet and and paid what at the time was you know an ungodly amount of money, like I think twenty five bucks for a ticket, mm -hmm. and uh, to this Cyrus party. Mm. And I don't know, I don't know if you remember Cyrus. They, of course, uh, yeah. And uh, so I was all you know the, the party was called uh, Total Recall, mm -hmm. and and uh, I was uh, you know chomping at the bit to to uh, to figure out a way to get down there. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what. Like they were all, all this conversations about like a meeting point at, at uh, Union Station. And I was like, well, that, that seems interesting. Um, and uh, just as we were about to head out, uh, I guess my uh, my mother got wind of, of what was going on and was like, you're not going to you're not going to this rave party. And I was like, but I but I already bought the ticket. And uh, so that launched into a, a rather uh, uh, loud argument. And of course, eventually uh, wound up with me uh, staying home. Instead oh, of going no. to this party, so I still have the ticket. Oh, but uh, <laughs> who was the headliner? The flyer, pardon? Who was the headliner? Who was headlining? Uh, Fantasy and oh. Gemini. Oh my gosh! Featuring uh, MC Reality. Holy smokes! And then oh, all of the, all the locals: Mystical Influence, Sniper, Medicine Muffin, Sigma Seven, Roughneck, Johnny, Danny Henry, Mark Oliver, Algorithm, Dominic. Of course. Of course. I was just listening uh, to him a couple of days ago, Dominic. Yeah. And so uh, that almost ended things, I guess, before it began uh, for me anyways, uh, because I guess my parents had seen that episode of 90210 where, uh, <laughs> of course. They get, where the kids go to a rave and, and you know, shenanigans ensue or whatever. But uh, sure. so I had to be a little more uh, a little more careful about uh, my uh, my choices. Um, but eventually I did get to I did end up going to Toronto and uh, uh, my first party was uh, the United Dance World Tour in, I think, uh, August of 96. Hmm. And uh, it was a crazy event. Um, again, John Double O. Fleming, like you said, hmm. was playing. Um, who else? Vinyl Groover, uh, LSD, uh, Johnny, Dominic, Psy. Um, hey, uh, Bianca, you I remember I had a Guild Wars character I called LSD? Oh, nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my, my my other character in that game was Rotterdam Hardcore. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Ow. So uh, that was crazy. I mean, that was, uh, like you said, it was hundreds of people, thousands probably, uh, all sort of dancing together while not really dancing, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, uh, facing the DJs or facing the speakers or uh, whatever. Um, and uh, that was sort of my introduction to the whole concept of, like, the vibe at a party, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then that feeling of uh, togetherness and whatnot. And this this place, uh, this party was at the, uh, uh, it was actually at the warehouse, um, speaking of RPM. Mm -hmm. um, so it was right next door. And uh, uh, they had like pyrotechnics and, you know, dancing, dancing girls and 
you know, all sorts of lasers and stuff like that. Like it was a big show. It was like nothing I had, uh, nothing I was used to. Oh, sure. Well, if they're selling, oh, it was another one that you said, uh, you got your tickets through Ticketmaster. Oh, it was, it was the biggest productions with, yeah. with a budget that, uh, you knew it was going to be some kind of a spectacular show at a major venue if they were going through like the biggest concert channels to distribute their tickets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was kind of funny that, uh, these were quote unquote underground, uh, events, but yet you could get your tickets at Ticketmaster. That's right. That was, there was kind of a, a bit of a, you know, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't really, uh, on the level, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah, it wasn't exactly on the hush hush. Yeah. Oh, but I guess, um, also I, I started going to, um, ecstatic records on, uh, John street. Oh yes. Um, Queen and John, right. Even, even before, before I, I partied and that was, uh, that was basically to grab every flyer that I, I could. And, you know, uh, from the, they had like a flyer bin of old flyers and stuff like that. You could just sort of load up if you wanted to. Uh, and that was how I found out about like certain zines, like, uh, like tribe magazine and, and, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah. Communicator was another. Yep. Yep. That, that was, I think that was a little before my time, but, mm. uh, but yeah, just, I was remember being in awe of their wall of mixtapes, which I've, I guess I've tried to emulate through my, uh, my collection at home. Right. Um, but that was sort of like, you know, that was sort of ground zero for the Toronto rave scene, I guess, at, uh, at Queen and John, like you, that was where you got your, t- your tickets and your tapes and your clothes and, and uh, records and even stuff like that. Oh, it was. I'm glad you bring up Queen and John because that was totally like the official hangout of the Toronto rave scene. And to some Ske- small sketch ex- corner, right? sketch corner. That's right near Grange Park. And to some extent, that was kind of a gothy area as well. Although that was more a little bit further west on Queen Street. But I bought many rave tickets there, many uh, mixtapes. There was a great store called Numb. Yes. Oh, Numb. Yeah. Who could forget? Oh, yeah. So they had phenomenal mixtapes there and lots of clothing and stuff like that. That was like a, a mecca for your, your ravey needs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, what is it? <laughs> oh, nothing. I just... You okay? Eh, I'm just bored. Okay, sorry. Well, I'm waiting for you guys to uh, say something interesting. I'm sorry. We owe you, I owe you an episode, okay? <laughs> I really do. Um, I got my, most of my tickets cause I lived on the North end from Fairview mall. Uh, there was a store called ragtag and yep. they, it was a, a clothing store that had like $70 t-shirts, which back then was like $110 or something of today's money. Yeah. You could never afford anything in there, but they had, I think some of the cheapest, um, service fees that they would attach onto the price of rave tickets. And they had lots of flyers and stuff there too. So I must have given them like a total of $23 or something over the years just yep. in, in those service uh, fees. Oh, yeah. Hey, Rag, Ragtag is listed as a store that you could buy a ticket at on the back of this uh, flyer from 93. Yeah, oh, so. man. Even that far back. That's really <laughs> yep. something. Yep. That's uh, neat. So yeah, it's kind of cool. You mentioned briefly the whole parents situation. And so um, oh, yes. I wanted to I, – I don't know why my parents were – for the, for the first long time anyway, so cool about me doing these all-night activities. Because, I mean, we haven't we haven't said it yet, but, I mean, I guess the, the usual schedule of a rave party is something like 9 p.m. until, like, upwards of 8 or 9 a.m. That's right. Not that everybody stays for the duration, but there are people who find activities even after that to yeah, occupy the, the themselves. The after parties, yes. That's right. That I only did, I think, once, and I don't exactly – I kind of regret it. <laughs> um, you didn't wind up at the comfort zone, did you? That was the place. <laughs> the sketchiest place on earth. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, it started off pretty well with my parents. I would we, I would stay out and come home between like 4 and 5 in the morning or so. Um, I would go weekly to a place called uh, The Space, also known as The E-Space. Yes, okay, I remember that. Oh, did you go there? 
Uh, no, I actually never never made it. But uh, again, since I was desperate to hold on to any fragment of information about the uh, the scene back in sort of the pre-internet days, I I made it my mission to try and find out about as much of it as I could. Oh yeah, well uh, that it was it was a bit of a dream factory. It was like a, a it was a very strange location. So they had a they had this like weekly Friday night event. I don't even know if it had a. I think they just called it Fridays at the Space. It was the most peculiar location. Um, it was in Toronto's West End, and before it became this nightclub slash, I believe, home for the owner of the place, right. it was like a slaughterhouse. Oh, yes. Okay. I've heard of this. So along the floors, like against the wall of the floors, there were these uh, like drains where like the blood from the butchered animals were supposed <laughs> to drain into like some kind of a sluice on, under the ground. I don't know. Pretty... Delightful. They're graduating from Bovine University. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right on. So that's something I didn't know until I'd already been going there for a, a year or so because it's dark enough that you don't really see the details on the walls like that. But right. um, the people who went there were kind of like family after a while. There were the regulars. There, there were the DJs that you would see all the times. Every now and then they would they would bring in one of the headliners that would be playing the next night for less money somehow. The place probably right. held maybe 200 people at capacity, and it usually wasn't completely full. But uh, it was just a really, a really like warm kind of a friendly environment where everyone was welcome. There were people of all like socioeconomical situations who would come there, of every nationality, people of different ages. They would even have uniformed police officers kind of patrol through there sometimes. Oh and yeah. Not only were they courteous, they would smile, they would wave, and on rare occasion, they would even, like, dance a little bit just to kind of show themselves as, like, paragons of the community, which was so super cool. This was circa, like, 96, 97, maybe 98. Maybe they were closed by 98. Um, we went there without fail every single Friday, and our parents were cool with it. I would go maybe with my friends. It's possible that they didn't. They believed that you were involved in wholesome activities. Well, I suppose we were because I mean I'm not going to go into the sordid details of what happened after my first year and a half of raving or so. But <laughs> I know that your mother used to make lunches to send with you and uh, um, your our mothers friends. used to make us sandwiches to pack to eat. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! We would sit away on the dance floor, which is just so super cool. I think uh, the bouncers got to know us as the sandwich guys before long, <laughs> which that's was just funny. very sweet. I, I never did pack a lunch to go to a party, though. Yeah, well, I didn't really miss it most of the time, but we weren't <laughs> we weren't sorry to have it, I suppose. That's awesome. My friend's mom would make us, like, schnitzel sandwiches and fancy things like that. It was awesome. So we had a phenomenally good time there. I have a, I have a, a mixtape from uh, The Space on the website. I don't know how many of those I might have, but they also sold some clothing and a whole bunch of yep. tapes. But I saw some big names there in a very small environment, but mostly the absolutely fantastic Toronto locals. That was yeah, for sure. Where they kind of hung their hat for the most part. So well, I had a great time in, there. In Kitchener, there were a couple of places that you could go, uh, you know, on a weekly basis because parties were sort of few and far between. Um, there was a, a basement nightclub called the Vinyl Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, which um, was around, I guess, around maybe 94 or 95. And uh, a lot of the Kitchener locals, I think, got their start behind the decks at a place like that. There was another place uh, in Kitchener called The Beat. Uh, which was like a, a nightclub slash dance studio on the second floor hmm. of uh, this, you know, uh, probably should have been condemned uh, building, um, like a lot of a lot of the venues. 
Um, and then there was sort of a hangout, uh, I guess a juice bar or something uh, called the Enchanted Forest, which became sort of the uh, ecstatic of, uh, of Kitchener-Waterloo mm. uh, in that it was a place you know, for people to hang out and, and swap stories and pick up zines and flyers and smart drinks mm. uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and that was, of course, it was only open for, uh, for a brief time because uh, uh, ravers would, uh, would come there and hang out, but they wouldn't exactly spend any money. Uh, so, uh, they, uh, it quickly sort of came to a close, but it was a neat little place to, uh, uh, to hang out, listen to music, um, and, uh, sort of get, get more of an education from your, your peers, I guess, about what was going on, uh, on Saturday nights, uh, in the middle of nowhere in Toronto huh. or in the middle of downtown type of thing. I can't remember if it was Kitchener or Waterloo that had a club called the Revolution, the Rev. Oh yes, yes, Revolution was a Waterloo nightclub, formerly uh, a roller rink known as the Twist. Mm. Um, actually, no, it was a nightclub known as the Twist. It was called Super Skate Seven before that, and it was a roller rink. So it was actually this, you know, this cavernous uh, venue, um, and it catered, I think, mostly to the university crowd. Oh, okay. That, that must have been the people that I went with then, because that had yeah. its fair share of like legitimate ravey music, although not most of the time, but on occasion. Yeah, they had a little space in the back called the Purple Room. That, oh, yeah. uh, was the That was where sort of the second generation of Kitchener and Waterloo DJs uh, got their start behind uh -huh. the decks. Um, I actually managed to DJ there a couple of times uh, back in the day, which was... Uh, uh, a real treat. Um, oh, that's awesome. Well, let's talk about that, shall we? Because I know that you are a, a performer in some capacity of electronic music. I didn't realize that you DJed as well. Yeah, I uh, I started, um, uh, gosh, well, I started DJing in around 2000, hmm. uh, but I started collecting gear and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to play live electronic music, um, you know, a few years before that, because... Uh, sort of being in a situation where uh, my parents were a little more on the conservative side and uh, weren't, you know, going to let me have the keys to the car to to go, you know, uh, raving in in downtown Toronto or whatever. Um, I had to find other outlets, and of course, you know, this this always circles back to the music. Mm -hmm. um, so I tried to figure out how to uh, make the music that I was hearing uh, on these tapes and 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 whatnot. And uh, luckily, uh, and again, this is around my uh, high school, uh, my uh, music teacher at high school had an Atari ST uh, computer. Mm. And uh, it, he had this program called Notator. And it was uh, sort of a sequencing program. And uh, I found out that um, the, uh, actually at my church, the music uh, pastor there had the same computer with the same program. Huh. And so this it would allow you to, you know, using MIDI, uh, to sequence uh, outboard gear like uh, synthesizers and whatnot. And so uh, I started spending a lot of time uh, in the uh, music room at uh, my high school and, uh, and uh, in my, uh, uh, at my church uh, music pastor's office uh, figuring out how to use this, uh, this software. Well, that's and a so great way to sully those otherwise wholesome environments. I guess so, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and... Uh, so from there, uh, I started uh, just, you know, it was basically trial and error, right? And uh, um, what did it for me, though, was uh, a few years later, um, oh, actually, you know, I'll back up. Uh, so basically, my, early, my earliest stuff was literally like a Korg M1 synthesizer workstation uh, banging out really cheesy, um, uh, trancey-type music that was mostly inspired by you know, things like the uh, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation theme song or something like that. Like, it was really very, very basic. Yeah, that was um, an analog synthesizer, wasn't it? 
Well, it was a, no, it was a it was a digital uh, workstation. Um, so it had, I mean, it had every every sort of uh, natural sound you could think of, like piano and bass and and acoustic drums and stuff like that. Uh, and uh, then it had some sort of you know strings and uh, some odd sort of trancey sort of uh, patches that you could use. But it was uh, it was multi timbral, which meant you could get more than one sound out of it at a time. Mm-hmm. So you would lay down a drum track, and then on another channel you could lay down your bass line, and another channel, uh, you know, the main sort of synthesizer uh, lead sound or whatever. Um, so you know these were uh, I used every opportunity I could. I think there was a. a you know, in OAC music, uh, we had to do a um, some kind of uh, recording. So I, I uh, did a you know straight to tape type of thing uh, from from the uh, the outs of the uh, the M1, mm-hmm. uh, the audio outs, doing uh, you know projects, so music projects like that. So there was no, it certainly wasn't uh, wasn't as good as the stuff that I was hearing on uh, on these on tapes and at parties and stuff like that. But uh, I was getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what did it for me was uh, seeing uh, Dub Tribe Sound System perform live at uh, uh, a party in Waterloo uh, in 1997. Oh, I've seen and them. They're great. They're such hippies. I had never seen anything like this before. I mean, the, the two of them with an entire music studio's worth of gear, like just scattered in front of them. Yeah. Uh, 909, 303, you know, an SP-1200 sampler, a full mixing board. Uh, everything wired together and they were just, you know, given it and, vocals and the, crowd, too. the crowd loved it. And I was like, I want to do that. Hmm. Right. Like, it, you know, yeah, I, I knew that, uh, turntables were hideously expensive. Um, and, uh, then you had to, you know, you had to, you had to find the records and buy them and stuff like that. But, you know, seeing, seeing somebody making electronic music live was like, this is exactly what I wanted to, uh, what I wanted to try and do. So from there I started buying, the type of gear that I saw, you know, live PAs using, um, as opposed to trying to emulate the DJing uh, that I'd seen before that. Hmm. Well, that's great. I uh, I also produced uh, music around that. Uh, it was mostly before I started going to raves. I guess what, me going to raves was the tail end of me making music, but that was the sort of music that I made. Um, and I did it with my computer. One of our first episodes of this podcast was about mod music. Oh, yes. So like some kind of uh, tracker? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so I, I used trackers. It was about four years or so I wrote music with mod trackers. And a lot of it was like breakbeat techno or just regular techno. I did some house music. I did some non-dance music as well. But um, uh, having seen a couple of live PAs, and to this day, the Roland TB303 remains my favorite musical instrument on of planet course. Earth. But um, the what I love more than anything else about this kind of music was just sampling manipulating samples, turntablism, playing, like interrupting a sample and starting it again from the beginning in like a jarring, unearthly kind of a fashion. Right. That's just sort of what really kind of captured my imagination. It was just such like a a punky sort of a, a thing to do. It's like this iconoclastic, like spit in the face of ordinary media, playing things the way that they're not supposed to be played and like disrespecting while respecting like the, the sources of that of that stuff, making reference to it, but kind of breaking it and rebuilding it into something else. I just absolutely love that. And I think it was kind of that uh, early to mid nineties, like breakbeat hardcore kind of a sound that introduced me to that, you know, the drum loops and sampling and all of that, that that's what kind of turned me on and, and uh, allowed me to find that stuff exciting and accessible. 
And mm-hmm. of course, being able to do it on my computer meant that we already owned the hardware that we needed to do it and nothing more. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I do have a lot of respect for the live uh, PA kind of setups that takes a lot of coordination and uh, and uh, creativity and uh, technical know-how to get that to sound the way you want it and to happen when you want it to happen. A lot can go wrong in an environment like that versus the mod tracking where you kind of set things up to play like a player piano sort of. Right, right. Um, so you've performed at a, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get us too far away from the nostalgic side. I, I definitely want to talk about <laughs> the stuff that you're doing now. Um, right. so one thing that you did touch upon though, was that you, uh, started getting interested in the different genres of electronic music. You talk about getting interested in, uh, trance music a lot originally and some of the, uh, and then later on into uh, jungle music. Right. Um, and then you kind of made comments about the vibe. I'd be interested to hear if you have any take on the sorts of vibe that those different events or those different types of music kind of elicited in the participants. Hmm. Did you find that there was a different vibe at a Cyrus jungle party than there might have been at uh, like a, a Destiny sort of a trance party, for example? Well, I think the uh, yeah, I, I, I think to a to a certain degree for sure. Um, like looking back at the sort of the jungle. Uh, jungle events that I went to, uh, obviously the music's very up-tempo and uh, um, there's sort of a lot of like, you know, call and response from the crowd to the MC or the DJ, that sort of thing, mm. uh, you know, for the rewinds and all that kind of stuff. And it was very much, uh, um, you know, a lot of, I don't know, I mean, a lot of anthems, but then again, there are a lot of anthems in, in every genre, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I started, I think I swung between two, you know, extremes, going to uh, uh, mostly jungle-related events and then mostly, you know, techno-related events in Kitchener because techno was really sort of taking off um, locally, for me anyways. That was sort of the big sound. And I think there was a, you know, there was a definite Detroit connection um, with Kitchener uh, while uh, Toronto had, uh, you know, the trance and and, uh, and jungle um sort of blended together and and, and to a certain degree to techno as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, like the techno, techno events, like, um, would tend to be uh, often to be a little, like a little darker, right? Um, not necessarily as, uh, not like a happy hardcore party. I think if you want to look at the polar extreme, uh, like a hullabaloo event where it was, you know, whistles and, and, uh, uh, very light, I think Mm -hmm. lighthearted, um, Techno sort of went in a you know a bit of a different at least the events that I went to it was pretty uh, uh, pretty you know dark and you know dystopian and and uh, um, like I remember I went to this party I think at the Opera House uh, it was put on by uh, Ritual was the name of the group and it was sort of the post I don't know if you remember Transcendence they were uh, oh, only by uh, name never been yeah they did a whole lot of uh, of uh, techno events uh, in Toronto and actually ended up doing one in Kitchener too. Uh, but anyways, they, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a pretty extreme sort of environment. Um, everybody packed together, uh, minimal lighting, um, you know, uh, just this mechanical techno music, uh, at, at, you know, high decibel volume, uh, that sort of thing. So you kind of felt like it really sort of triggered your fight or flight, uh, reflex a little bit. <laughs> That's um, a great way to put it. And uh, there were other, you know, other parties that I went to, like specifically anytime uh, Dub Tribe was playing, it was a lot more, you know, on, on sort of like a hippie sort of techno hippie kind of uh, 
uh, of uh, of vibe. Oh yeah, um, a little bit more uh, flower power, I guess. Uh, oh, to yeah. a certain degree. Them and Rabbit in the Moon. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, that that kind of uh, that uh, West Coast flavor was always kind of. Uh, um, uh, definitely a little more uh, uh, Hayden Ashbury type of uh, hippie uh, had, had, had a, a hippie outlook to it. It was. Which, was, little, which was very cool. It was a little but more then, accessible you, than other ones too. It was a little yeah. more relatable in some ways. Yeah, and I remember you know going to uh, the second Hullabaloo party um, back in 97. Yeah, was, I was there. It was pretty jarring too. It was like uh, you know they, they had a, I think they had two floors or two different rooms or whatever and um uh, the happy hardcore was sort of in one, you know, in sort of one uh, direction, and then I think I forget what else was going on. Probably uh, hard house or or techno or trance in in the other the other area. But uh, yeah, I think certain sounds lent themselves to a certain sort of uh, uh, certain sort of vibe. Very much so. I, I was at that party. I think that was the one that had MC Ruff from uh, the Prodigy. Oh, really? I believe so. And it was, I, I, I don't know why I can picture this. This was like 20 plus years ago. I, the, the hardcore music was in the basement, and it was so bloody boiling friggin' hot in this place. It was in like the the Macedonian community center or something yes, like I, that. Yes, I remember it being in a community center. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so downstairs there were these. Spadina or something. Yes, exactly. There were these fans kind of along the perimeter that just pushed this hot air a centimeter and a half. And so I was lucky enough to park myself in front of that. <laughs> But that MC Ruff, he was awesome. He was this, like, great, big, imposing, scary-looking guy with this super gravelly voice. If you've ever heard their song, Poison, yes, um, yeah. he has this really terrifying, gravelly voice. But he was MCing to Happy Hardcore, and he was just, like, sing-songy and jubilant. And despite his appearance, he was just, like, the embodiment of, like, happy, free spirit. It was just so, so cool. And yeah. alas, I was scheduled to see him again at the World Electronic Music Festival. It must have been in 98, I guess. Right. And sadly, he had passed away due to heart complications or something. Yeah, there seemed to be a lot of that going around uh, in MCs. Uh, who was the other one that passed away? Oh, Stevie Hyper D. Stevie Hyper D. What a he talented, was, uh, amazing famous. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ironically, killed by a blood clot. <laughs> Which <laughs> you feel like Too a terrible. Soon. Too te- soon. Yeah, I know. You feel terrible <laughs> laughing about it, but I guess if you got to go. Yeah, he was an amazing MC. Boy, yeah, was he talented! I've got a couple of tapes that feature him quite uh, prominently, and yeah, he was uh, he was a national treasure. That's for sure. He sure was. Uh, he, he, I was supposed to see him too, uh, but I think he had died a month before or something, maybe less. Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it, that was kind of a big deal. I remember uh, him him passing away. It was kind of like wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He was a young guy, not even thirty. Mm-hmm. Real sad. Yeah, so uh, uh, did you end up going to uh, the World Electronic Music Festival that year? I went three years, 97, 98, 99. Oh, so you were at 97 too. I, I, I was, I, that was my first WEMP. Was that Sobble Beach? No, that was uh, Sobble Beach was 98, if I recall correctly. I don't remember when No, wait, was. Christian Island was 1998. Ah, I think Sobble Beach might have been 97. I don't know. It had its ups and downs. At the, the first one I went to, it was a three-day rave. If you can imagine such a thing, it was like an outdoor camping music festival kind yeah. of a thing, much to the chagrin of the the townies who lived nearby and heard three days of thumping off in the distance. Um, it, that was very much complained about, I hear. That's why I think why it changed locations every year. Yeah, so, they they uh, didn't start repeating until much later. That's right. So um, the '97 one I went to. That's where I got to see. Uh, that's the first time I saw. Um, Dub Tribe sound system. They were phenomenal. right in that tent. Yep, that's right. Um, that's that's where I lost my wallet 
and some how did it happen? Some stranger was walking around asking people whether they had lost their wallet. They came up to me and asked, "Did you lose your wallet?" I said, "Yes." And she said, "Can you describe it?" And I'm like, "Oh, it has uh, a cartoon penguin on it." And she's like, oh, uh, "Okay, here you go." Oh, awesome! And it was fully intact with like my my twenty seven dollars or whatever still in the <laughs> wallet. That was that was very much also like an embodiment of the rave spirit. It was just sure. very like communal. People are there for each other, and we're all just having a good time together. It was the second time I lost my wallet. I lost my wallet twice at raves and got it back intact both times. Nice. And also, that's why, that's why I used a wallet chain. That's I, I did eventually. <laughs> at first, a metal one, and later on, a fun fur one. I may or may not have had a fun fur one as well. <laughs> <sighs> oh no, I didn't have a fun fur one. I, mine was plastic plastic chains, a la <laughs> a la kindergarten. Oh, I think I had one with plastic uh, <laughs> building blocks. Oh, that's even more elite. Yeah, well, elite. I'm not sure. I don't know. To us, that, that's, some fashion crimes were committed in that in that scene for sure. Oh, that they were. Yeah, that they were. However, yeah. it was... Oh, and, and speaking of fashion, um, I believe... I heard later on that Toronto had very unique raver fashion. Um, and one one look that I really liked, which I thought was also a very kind of a, a punky, anti-establishment sort of a thing, was that uh, young women would often wear a dress shirt and a tie. That's correct. With their fat pants. And that seemed like just such an awesome screw-you business world sort of a thing and they would often have like a shaved head or so there was this one girl who would always go to the space every single week her her head would be freshly shaved and would have a different like neon pattern in it i don't know how this girl operated in regular society she would have like a big letter e in neon orange on both sides of her head and she was just cute as a button too that she could pull off the shaved head look but how do you operate in society as a billboard for such activity, I don't know. But I, I, I always like that. What's yeah, that? I was going to say wigs. Just have oh, a wig. Keep it short. That's a good call. Ah, see, this never occurred to me. I'm, I'm not a smart man. You see, you wear a wig, and then you can, and then you, it looks nice, and it's always maintained. You don't have to ever get a cut, and then you're free to do whatever you want to do the rest of your body. If only I knew. Well, Bianca, to loop you back in, you said, <laughs> thank you for being such a great sport, my darling. Um, at your high school, you said you had, had kind of a raver collective at your artsy fartsy hippy dippy school that you went to <laughs> yeah we went i went to an arts high school in ottawa well how, how would you describe the fashion of of this group uh, they seem to be the more preppy than the rest of the school really yeah because there was the dancers there were the uh musicians there were the goths the goths took over the school as they do mm-hmm. yep <laughs> the school was there was a ratio of one guy for every seven girls. That ain't too shabby. Interesting. So, That's an art school for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So most of so the people so so it seems that the ravers were the student council because that's all the music they ever played in the cafeteria. Oh, that was my exposure. They were the upstanding yeah. citizens. Yeah. That's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, like they're the ones who completely blended in. Like we didn't have anyone who dressed like this stood out aside from the art students and the goths. Everyone who, you, if you were just conservative, you're either Muslim in the Christian fellowship or you're on the student council. And I guess at an art school, like the term standing out means something very different than <laughs> elsewhere. It probably means that you're the ones that aren't dressed outlandishly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I usually dressed in black, so I blended right in. Yeah, that's right. You can get along with most of those social groups, I suppose, mm-hmm. if you play it safe like that. Yeah, except my group was the most conservative one. For some mm-hmm. reason, I wound up with 
Christian, with the Christian fellowship group as my friends. Ugh. Despite your ideological beliefs? Yeah. That was interesting, but yeah, my exposure was going to the cafeteria, hearing this music and going, my head hurts, I'm leaving. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I don't really remember there being a lot of raver fashion representation at my high school. I think my, I would dress so that there was kind of like a hint of my, of my evening activities in what I wore, but I didn't really go all out. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just the, 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 the kind of climate of my high school in general. I don't really remember too many people at all standing out. Being punky or gothy or whatever. Oh, yeah, we had punky people, uh, goth people dressing whatever they want. Like, I, I know that a lot of the guys, don't bite me, were the, <laughs> the nerdier ones, just wore whatever they found on their floor. They looked like they rolled out of bed. That's probably what I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Brandon, did you uh, dress ravey outside of the scene, or was it your own little secret? Well, no. I mean, again, because uh, I wasn't getting out to as many parties early on as I as I wanted to, mm. uh, I had to express myself in, in sort of different ways. I think I, I remember getting a pair of uh, uh, wide-legged, uh, I'm not sure I'd call them fat pants yet, but they were uh, buffalo jeans. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, they, were, they were more like the stovepipe sort of... Uh, 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 they weren't flared at the bottom or whatever, right. but uh, I remember picking those up. And, uh, you know, it was just basically like, you know, a T-shirt as well. Like it wasn't there wasn't anything outlandish. Um, But uh, as time went on, I mean, you know, once once I graduated uh, from high school and started going to university, I mean, I, you know, you added you added the ostentatious wallet chain and Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that sort of thing. But really, it was like a jeans and T-shirt situation for me. Uh, A lot of the ravers at at my high school, again, like they kind of looked like skaters, but um, the skate kids with a little more expensive uh, gear, I guess. Um, but then there were these, uh, there were these. I, I don't know if you want to call them club kids or housers. That was what, that's what we used to call them. Um, they were very, very preppy. Um, but they would wear like these, you know, flared fat pants that were kind of like, uh, like almost like it was almost like formal wear. Um, and uh, very, you know, very pricey looking uh, um, uh, turtlenecks and vests and, and, and so that sort of thing. And these sort of were, it was this weird sort of other subculture that I couldn't quite wrap my head around, but, uh, it was based around, you know, sort of house music and the warehouse parties that were going on in Toronto at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so that was a little different. Um, I would say that's and, more indicative of kind of the nightclub thing because we had yeah. a lot of really down to earth house music kind of a parties. Maybe it was more of a hard house kind of a thing. Cause I went to a yeah. lot of house events where people were super down to earth and maybe they wore kind of like sports gear kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the other, that, that was the other side of it. The, um, uh, the guys who were dressed in, you know, like uh, soccer, you know, <laughs> soccer colors and that sort of thing. That's true. Yeah. That I'm sure came right out of England. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, just trying to think what else was, uh, what else was popular? No, it was, I mean, it was basically like sneakers. Oh, when, when, oh yes. When, when people started cutting, uh, um, cutting open their their jeans and sewing in inserts oh, yeah. uh, to make the to make the pants you know the fat pants even fatter. Right. That was sort of when when the when the, once the style had sort of been codified. Right. And it was like baseball caps, shirts, and then fat pants. Right. T-shirts. Um, but I was also a big fan of uh, people using uh, repurposing uh, Tide boxes as backpacks because <laughs> that was sort of the other the other big thing. Tide boxes. Um, I never saw yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they would just sort of put the straps in, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure they only survived one night. But right. uh, I kind of forgot that the whole the whole backpack thing was another big 
uh, rave uh, fashion accessory. Oh, very uh, much so. You'd have all these skinny, these really skinny kids, and they'd have these giant backpacks on. That's right. Well, they'd be full of toys and books and crayons, etc., for uh, occupying your busy self. <laughs> That's right. That's the, the whole sketchbook thing. That's right. Emphasis no, on the word sketch. Right. No pun intended. Yeah. Yeah, I used to have, uh, I had a, you've probably seen it, Bianca. I had a vibrating massage toy kind of a thing that looks like a bug. It's like a back massager sort of a thing, but it yeah. looks like a little kind of a doodle bug, ladybug thing. Mm-hmm. What did I keep with me? A friend of mine had a rabbit that we decided to name Gargamel. <laughs> and one day he lost Gargamel and was beside himself with grief for 45 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, well, my friend, mis- I had a friend mispronounced something and we came up with Space Newts. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she was making fun of a book I had on me just because I was reading some low. I was reading some lowbrow trash. And you showed me some graffiti of space notes in your notebook, didn't you? Yeah, but I had some lowbrow V.C. Andrews crap in my backpack. Just you know, light reading for the bus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> light reading, yeah. Oh yeah, light reading. It was completely vapid. And so, and her and her and her attempts to make fun of my book. My friend misread the back uh, ex, uh, description on the on the uh, book and called and decided that and somehow came up with space newts. I like that. Yeah, so it came a whole running thing. So we had space newts. <laughs> That's, That's funny. So, um, so yeah, we of course we exchanged tape, but no uh, rave music for us. It was no. I don't know if you've ever enjoyed anything along those lines. Nope. What did we exchange? Celtic music. <laughs> right. Oh yes. I don't know if that was the most rambunctious group of, of uh, aficionados. Nope. By the way, you mentioning uh, the Tide Boxes reminds me of another uh, fad that was going on more in the earlier days of Rave, and that was like the fake corporate logo shirts. Oh, absolutely. Where instead of Bell, it would say Hell. My favorite one was the Dunkin' Donuts that said Fucking Go Nuts. Oh, I remember those. <laughs> Couldn't wear those to school. I'm and sure not. They were probably yeah. from San Diego, the store. Oh, I don't even know. Because I had my um, backseat driver's license from there. <laughs> I, I was never awesome enough to have one of those, but I idolized those. Yeah, yeah I remember my mother uh, fresh hit me when I got that. She kept trying to get me fresh not drive. to get, get it, so I got it. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, sort of the, the appropriation of corporate logos and then, you know, the parodies was, was certainly a big thing. I remember... Um, Oh, I want to say it was Pleasure Force, another early production company in Toronto had, uh, you remember Players uh, Players Light or Players Cigarettes? Mm-hmm. The, the logo instead said Ravers, yeah, uh, which was always good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I lo- like a lot of the, a lot of uh, early rave um, flyers, I think the artwork uh, co-opted a lot of corporate logos and, and sort of turned them on their head type of thing. Mm-hmm. It was very much kind of an anti-establishment sort of a, um, um, I guess I'd call it a movement. I don't know. And yet at the same time, it was really like apolitical. Yeah, it certainly didn't have the... It just the, satirical. The, like it didn't really care. That's a good way to put it. It's like, it's like aware of culture, but not necessarily... Opposed to culture. It, it could have just been saying, hey, this is cool. Let's make it our own. Yeah. Yeah, for just sure. Saying, and that goes right back to the remix. Icon. These people recognize it, but then see that we're making fun of it and go, ha that's good. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you. Not everyone was in on the joke, but they recognize the joke. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a remix culture, really. Oh, that's a very good way to put it, and I suppose that's uh, indicative of the music as well, with the sampling and all of that. Yep, yep. That's a very good way to put it. I don't know if I ever really tied those concepts together, but they really do fit hand in hand. Mm-hmm, um, for sure. One thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, interesting rave venues. Are there, oh, nice! Yeah. Are there any that uh, stand out for you in your in your memory that are worth talking about? Well, let me see. Um, 
Uh, okay, I'm trying to think here. Um, a lot of it, but I mean, by the time I was in my partying sort of heyday, like I really, really started going out on a regular basis uh, in '97, uh, um, and uh, like almost on like a weekly basis at times. Mm. Um, and that was sort of during I don't know if you want to call it like Toronto's sort of third wave or second wave, well, probably the third wave of, of you know, companies like uh, like Frill. Oh yeah, um, those guys, uh, techno guys. Yeah, and then the guys who were trying to bring uh, techno and, and drum and bass together. Yeah, um, and you know, succeeded sometimes. Um, and uh, like the venues then were places like the uh, like the Masonic Temple or. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like you know, you would use you would use uh, the warehouse and, and uh, um, well, I guess uh, the government uh, as as sort of venues there. So we we kind of sort of transitioned away from those oddball kind of venues. Like there were some places in Kitchener that were warehouses for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, even well, like, uh, partying at the Opera House in in uh, Toronto. Like I mean, those are all sort of concert uh, concert venues that were repurposed, I guess. Right. Um, when I, I started throwing parties uh, briefly, did you? Um, yeah, in the uh, early early two thousands. Wow! And um, we we threw a party uh, on the second floor of um, it was called the Ray Electric Building in uh, Cambridge, and it was just you know it was an older uh, an older sort of uh, multi level structure, um, kind of uh, industrial, um, and uh, there was this. Uh, 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 kind of like a club that was on the second floor that, uh, that allowed us to, to come in there. And, uh, we threw this party, uh, in December of 2000 it was on like the, one of the coldest nights of the year. And, uh, you know, ravers were lined up outside freezing and we were trying to, you know, put, put the finishing touches on the sound system. Mm-hmm. Hadn't let anyone in yet. But, um, anyhow, we packed that place out. It was this sort of long, narrow, um, uh, space. And, uh, in the morning when we were cleaning up, um, we noticed that uh, the floor was really unstable, um, and you could actually see through. Uh, um, I think a, like a knot had fallen out of the wood, um, and you could see down into the basement of this building <laughs> wow. that we were throwing this party on. And, and we, you know, we'd kind of remarked on the sort of the the sponginess of the floor at one point <laughs> in the night, but uh, I, I don't think we really we really clued into how close we came to mass disaster. Jeez, yeah, I guess uh, that building wasn't engineered to have hundreds of people jumping up and down for hours. Probably not. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was sort of one one area where it was kind of like, huh, we won't, won't do that again. Um, but it was, I mean, it was a great uh, a great space, but uh, probably a little risky. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to think of where else. Speaking of, of risk, I do have a question. Yeah. Have either of you ever been to a rave where it was broken up? I know you've been to one in, out in Vancouver, but have you, Brandon? Uh, there was one party that I left early just as the police were showing up. And I was like, oh, dodge that bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, And then well, actually, uh, with the same folks that uh, I'd been throwing parties with, um, we uh, for whatever reason, we hooked up with a... Um, a group in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, of all places, hmm. and uh, they wanted to bring our DJ crew down um, for their anniversary event, and um, so we loaded. Uh, there were about three three DJs, and then all of my sort of studio gear that I was using for live PA stuff. So we rented a rented a van or whatever, and we drove. Um, 
you know, down to Buffalo and then, and then into, uh, into New England, I guess that area. Hmm. And, uh, we showed up after about, I don't know, it was like an eight hour drive or a 10 hour drive. And, uh, we showed up in the, then, and this venue was amazing. It was this warehouse with multi multiple rooms and it was going to be fantastic. But the promoter was sort of standing there with this panicked expression on his face. And, uh, he'd said that, yeah, the, the fire marshal had shut us down even before, like this was the, we were there the day that we were, that we were going to play that night. Oh, man. And I guess he, uh, we'd given him a cell phone number, but one of the numbers was wrong. Mm. So he'd been trying to frantically call us as we were driving oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> for hours. Uh, so that was kind of a, a bit of a downer. That's a huge uh, downer, man. Yeah. So that party, uh, didn't happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a funny story anyways. Um, and uh, we ended up doing a makeup, like a last-minute event in whatever venue they could find. And, like, there were, like, four people that showed up. So um, that, was, that was in, like, the spring of 2001. Uh, yeah. So, the ra- uh, you know, rave was kind of a four-letter word, I think, at that point. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm not – you know, it's not a surprise that, that a venue uh, like that was um, – completely uh, uh on the the fire marshal's radar or whatever um, you know almost the same thing happened to me um i uh i was a hobbyist dj uh for several years by this point and a friend of mine was throwing a rave in vancouver and i had already had plans to visit some other friends in vancouver who were also ravers so uh the guy invited me to headline his little party as a guest dj oh cool so Luckily, I mean, in terms of equipment, the only thing I had to bring was a little MIDI controller to control software on a computer and uh, I think like a flash drive with my music or something. Uh, those were the days. You didn't have to bring cart around a bunch of vinyl or anything like that. Um, so Unless you wanted to. Unless you wanted to. Yeah, it was, still, it was still not only in fashion, but I guess it was still the regular back then. Software was a, a rare thing at that mm-hmm. time. Um, but as with my other uh, hobbyist uh, inclinations, it was the cost-effective way to get into what I loved. Mm-hmm. So went all the way to Vancouver, had a great visit regardless. I met uh, my friend there who, kind of like you and I are speaking right now, we'd only, we'd only spoken online and had never met in person. Uh, and we hit, we hit it off uh, very well. Oh, yeah. you got a wet bird on your shoulder. That's nice. <laughs> um, so he told me when I got there that they had just lost their venue due to various legal complications. But don't worry, they have a backup venue and uh, the, they uh, had an information number for people to call. Okay. So their backup venue was like down uh, – no, it was up a, a big hill in a public park in a regular <laughs> – kind of a residential area. Oh. Nice. And so uh, the this kind of quietly booming party went on for a good two hours or so and a few DJs played. There were a good like 25 or 30 people there or so. Um, and – about 20 minutes before I was supposed to have my great big DJ debut, and in fact the only like actual rave performance that I would ever have uh, raving, here come the cops mm-hmm. um, oh, no. with a noise complaint. Um, and it wasn't the only party I'd been to where the cops had broken it up. It was always for like a, a licensing uh, or a zoning complaint or something, never having right. to do with the activity or anything. Mm-hmm. So the cops were real nice about it because we were nice back anyway. We were sheepish. <laughs> and they broke it up, so I lost my big opportunity there, having traveled thousands of miles, miles to get there. What are you going to do? Yeah. There was another one. What else got broken up? I went to another one that was just off in like a farmer's field or something somewhere. And oh, the yes. party, it was, this must have, it was already after sunrise that the cops 
came by, and most of them were very nice. One of them, my friend claimed, tried to plant some drugs in his pocket and then blame it on him. Mm-hmm. I don't know which side to believe on that, but <laughs> I think both are equally possible. Yep. Um, and the only uh, complaint that the cops had, the only, like the only thing that they threatened to press charges about, was that we had a campfire, and they said as long as we put out the campfire entirely, then they'd let us all go on our merry way, which they did and which we did. So for the oh, most part, even though raves were starting to uh, to uh, have a little bit of notoriety, cops were very humane and cool about it. Probably um, because yeah. it could have been like non-violent offenses, like just basic civil offenses like noise and uh, like zoning violations, which are not uh, criminal offenses. So they were probably like, okay, if it's this stuff, maybe we, we don't go in heavy-handed, it won't escalate. Maybe, and if so, like that does show great restraint and care for the community to have that kind of a of a mentality. Like, make no mistake, there there were criminal activities going on at some of these. Oh, things. Well, I don't doubt uh, it. I'm just saying yeah. they probably took the cautious approach just because there were so many people and they didn't want to ha- cause a big uh, hubbub by having so many cop cars there. And they probably that's just a good point. Just, they probably just wanted to go. They want probably wanted to be able to disperse it peacefully. That's a good point. Well, one party that I was at that I was surprised that they didn't shut down. Uh, was uh, the infamous uh, Hullabaloo uh, Rhythm of Life event in uh, at the docks in Toronto? Oh um, man! I'd... Way back in February of uh, was that ninety nine or so or two thousand? No, it, this was uh, two thousand one. Okay, that was, was probably the, the last event... one I ever went to. Oh really? Yeah, it was one of the last ones that was held outside the Opera House because if you remember, the Hulla kind of moved to the Opera House on a permanent basis after that. Yeah, for a while. Yeah, but that was the event where uh, a young man was stabbed, um, right. and uh, later died. I think he was alive when they uh, when the, the ambulance left the the venue, but uh, uh, he died in hospital. Right, and that was sort of uh, you know it, that wasn't an overdose. It wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't something like that, uh, which Toronto had unfortunately had a couple of times prior to that. I think just once, as I yeah. recall. Uh, what was that, that kid's name? Alan Ho uh, yeah. died at, at another hullabaloo, actually. I was at that one, but I had no idea about that it was happening at the time. All right. So, you know, this – and we didn't see the stabbing happen, but uh, my wife and her friend at the time were, were walking and all of a sudden were like, what's all this stuff on the floor? And what, what's this getting on my shoes? And it was this poor guy's blood. Oh, my gosh. And uh, when you're in an event that is sort of this happy, happy-go-lucky, happy hardcore, everyone's at peace with the world, you know, peace, love, unity, and respect, and, and there's a, a young guy uh, expiring on the floor. Um, Jeez. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like you take a long, you take a long look at, uh, at your life choices. And uh, right. what, what happened at that party then was that the police, uh, they, they shut down the second room. Uh, where the 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 stabbing had occurred, and of course everybody got jammed into uh, the main room at the docks, and uh, they kept the party going. Wow! And uh, uh, the police were were in and out, and and uh, I think we actually saw the stretcher get wheeled out um, with this guy on it. And uh, when when we decided to eventually leave, you know, a few hours later, uh, we come to the the entrance, and it was just wall to wall cops, and they were taking everybody's personal information. Hmm. Um, you had you you couldn't get out without showing your driver's license, wow, or some some form of ID, and they took everything down. And when you did get out, there was this phalanx of police cars. I'd never seen more police cars in my life, um, just parked in the parking lot of the docks. There, um, I guess they figured the best way to to get information was to keep 
uh, keep a lid on on the party and and get people's uh, details as they as they left. They must not have had a suspect, I guess. No, not at the time. As I recall, it was a pretty convoluted uh, affair to finally put the guy away that uh, that was responsible. Interesting. But um, as as fate would have it, uh, Herb Magazine was actually at that party doing a, a, a special uh, on the Toronto scene and and the the hullabaloo phenomenon. Oh, terrible! Um, so that stuff sort of ended up getting put in the article um, about how great hullabaloo was. But oh, by the way, somebody died at this party. Jeez. Um, so it was. Uh, that one was interesting. And of course, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, uh, we get a call from uh, Toronto homicide detectives wow, asking course. us asking us what we saw at the party and if we knew anything. And so that was a bit of a surreal experience. But I guess if they had if they had shut the party down, it would have been absolute chaos Gee. and they might not have gotten any information. Yeah. Well, kudos to the cops for yeah. handling it the way they did then. Because it also sounds like a good way to make sure you can procure a witness. Yes, yeah. exactly. Very true. That's really interesting. I mean, in a way, it's heavy-handed to collect people's information. Like, 99% of them, more than that, were, were innocent bystanders who may not have known that anything was happening. Yeah. True, but it also negates the bystander effect of somebody not coming forward. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. That's true. So Although I wonder how many how many uh, young ravers uh, were busted by their parents after getting a call from the police. True enough. Afterwards, yeah. True enough. Well... <laughs> it's uh, it's pales in comparison, but yeah, the, I, I was an avid hullabaloo raver. Um, I lost interest when they started doing a few parties at the docks, which was a pretty kind of notorious, very commercial nightclub. Oh like, sure, it was uh, it was large. It had a whole bunch of different rooms. Uh, it was attended by uh, just like superficial people. It was the oh, yeah. stigma. Um, the experience I had there, which kind of convinced me that maybe Hullabaloo had changed its spirit in its great success of 20-plus successful raves, was I scrounged my pockets to purchase a bottle of water. And because it was a great big nightclub and the deal they make was the, the, the nightclub staff have to be the ones that can sell the, the drinks for whatever yeah. they want. And often they didn't serve any alcohol whatsoever. Most of the time there was no alcohol. This mm -hmm. one I think there was. But all I wanted was a bottle of water. And they wanted like $6 for it or something. <laughs> and so I scrounged through my pockets and I literally had $5.95 in my pocket. And so I gave it to the guy and I apologized. I'm so sorry. I'm five cents short. short. Is that cool? He handed me back the money and turned his back to me and went to somebody else. Ouch. And so some uh, the, the girl behind me, just some random stranger, gave me a, a dollar, a loony, and said, here you go. And I'm like, here, let me give you the change. All I need is five cents. And she told me, happy hullabaloo. Nah. Which is yep. so cool. That was our that was the greeting. So that that was an unfortunate circumstance in that uh, situation. There was a thing for a while where uh, very disreputable nightclub owners would turn off the taps so that people oh, had to buy running water. Absolutely, and that was deemed extremely illegal. Well, I was at a frill party at a nightclub called uh, Shock back in 98 hmm. and they had done that very thing um i believe shock nightclub was was owned by a notorious uh toronto mobster um <laughs> but anyways that's neither here nor there but anyhow uh so yes they had shut off uh the cold water mm -hmm. so if you turned on if you went into the bathrooms and turned on the water it was this scalding 
uh, hot water that was coming out of the uh, out of the faucets. Wow! And uh, of course, they this was the type of place that would even lace the toilet water with bleach or whatever whatever you do to to uh, <laughs> discourage all kinds of shenanigans. But sure. uh, somebody actually ended up climbing into the ceiling and breaking the locks off of the uh, uh, the water supply. That's brilliant, as I recall. And uh, uh, this was one of those, you know, six to eight dollar bottle, you know, bottled water, you know, you, you know, the old stereotype of the expensive rave water mm. uh, being sold by the uh, by the venue. Um, and we had our run ins with uh, with as as uh, as promoters with with sketchy nightclub uh, nightclub folks. Um, we uh, we threw a party uh, in Kitchener and, and sort of made a deal because uh, we wanted it to be sort of alcohol free, like you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the raves were at, at uh, once once upon a time. Oh, yeah, the majority. And so we we you know paid a little extra to the uh, the club owners to basically say, look, you know, don't don't open the bar. And they were like, that's fine, that's fine. And then of course, you know, the party is midway through, and what are they doing? They're just selling whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's, but what are you going to do, right? <laughs> it was the middle the middle of the party, so it was kind of like, well, you just shrug your shoulders and go. So much for that. Yep. Well, unfortunately, you would pay them for the privilege, and then they would renege on it at that point. But what are you going to yeah. do, like you said? Well, exactly. So we didn't we didn't use that venue again. Right. Well, there's a lot. Of, there's there's worse things that can happen. Oh yeah, yeah. So we're at about the hour and forty five minute mark here, and I think we should kind of wind it down a little bit. Um, In that case, if you want to wind it down, I have one oh. question for you based on just a few uh, clubs we went to. And and you, your observation had been that uh, you found it quite pretentious, and that it wasn't uh, what the rave scene was. It played kind of that music, but mm-hmm. it didn't feel like a rave scene, especially with all the. Uh, more hoity-toity individuals uh, who were more uh, properly dressed and uh, less, uh, you know, individual, but more, but all looked similar. Mm-hmm. Oh, Did sure. you feel like the scene had died more then, and it, and it was kind of went elsewhere? Ooh, that's a good question. Mm. Me? I think I outgrew the scene before the scene, I don't know, I don't want to say the scene died because there's people who started going to raves in 1991 and were poo-pooing what was left of it in 1994 when it became more popular. True. Um, It it changes over time. It changes over time. It becomes more accessible and it kind of makes itself known in society. Like, I've, I've been surprised just, like, being in a shopping mall and I would hear, like, a popular dance rendition of what used to be a happy hardcore song so like it it becomes commercialized and it becomes homogenized and it becomes more accessible it permeates into society and it's not what it was the 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 seed of it is there but it's not all there there's a saying you can't go home again that's true i guess that was it for the most part it's really hard when you have this it's not even an idealized picture of raves that I have in my mind because I was there. It really happened. An ideal doesn't really happen. A utopia doesn't really happen. Unless you've experienced it? Well, I guess so. I mean, there's the best of the best, and I was there. You know, the best of what I experienced. I was there. I know what it can be. And it's pretty hard to expect that to occur again. So, I mean, nightclubs that we went to, nightclubs were never as good as raves. They were never what I was looking for. They were just attended by different people with different things in mind. I'm not saying it's worse. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a very thought-provoking question. I don't know how to answer that properly. What, uh, do you have anything to say on that, Brandon? Well, like uh, looking back, um, you know, everybody gets in. They, people get into the scene at certain ages and certain points in their life. And especially, the, you know, the movers and the shakers or the, the people who are running, you know, events and stuff like that. Their, their tastes change. And as they're, 
as the music changes and the and people's attitude changes, uh, so does the so does the scene, right? Like, I mean, once once you once you graduated from these illegal uh, warehouse parties or you know parties put on for friends by friends in you know small nightclubs to corporate sponsored um, festivals and and uh, major nightclubs and and uh, and that sort of thing like once once that changed and once the laws changed honestly like I mean what happened with uh, the um, the raves 2000 act in Ontario and and other similarly named uh, political or, or, or uh, policies and laws in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. um, you know you really did see something about the scene uh, changed or you know uh, like people either outgrew it or uh, it had to be it had to change in order to survive um, you know I, I often now try to try to figure out what the links are between what I experienced in the in the 90s and the 2000s uh, to what's going on in these giant gargantuan festivals that are happening on a scale that I can't even wrap my head around now. Oh my gosh! Yeah, these um, the whole EDM, the whole EDM thing, like the, you know, the link back to stuff that was going on, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah, um, it's there, but uh, you certainly like so many generations of people in the scene have have come and gone mm-hmm. that uh, it's it's it doesn't really you know it, it doesn't really resemble. Um, superficially anything anything that happened prior to that so maybe there's a little bit of uh, you know of evolution in there i guess uh over time um that uh you know we we were we were uh, doing something in the 90s that uh is very similar to what's going on now but at the same time very different and on a completely different scale yeah right you are that, that yeah that's kind of that's that's well articulated that's kind of what i have in mind in terms of like the commercialization homogenization aspect and it's not necessarily a bad thing it makes it more accessible but it's not my thing what what exists now true but it also means that there is less room for creativity if it's commercialized because then they have a certain they have certain uh, conf- uh, standard that the artist should conform to must conform to if they want the exposure you're definitely right about mm-hmm. that that there's less risk taking but i guess to put a positive spin on that i mean I that's I that, that's that's not far away from what any of us come to I guess those of us who like some quirky odd kind of music it probably there was probably a reference to it or some aspect of popular music that we really liked like in the in the 80s I listened to a lot of synth pop kind of music I, uh, one of the really important bands for me was called Black Box they had some fantastic uh, house music anthems and also d lights who did groove is in the heart oh absolutely yep. oh i bought their album and it's nothing but phenomenally good super absolutely legitimate like rave music warehouse kind of music yeah what a great band that is so sometimes some little gem from the underground will poke its its head into pop culture and everyone like d lights they'll know them as a one-hit wonder but if you really love what they do you'll find out that they have like three albums and yep. That was a little anomaly, and it totally opens your eyes to something else, and it kind of spirals from there. The further down the rabbit hole you want to go, the more sub 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 genres you'll you will find revealed. That's a good point. Yeah. So, oh, thank you. That was a great question. Um, 
Is there... I, I, I struggled trying to prepare myself for this episode. At first, I figured, okay, I lived it. It was a big part of my life for about four or five years or so, just attending these things. I'm not going to take any notes. Then it got to me, and I'm like, okay, I'll just take one or two notes. And I wrote a whole bunch of notes, and now I don't think I've touched them. <laughs> so I see, <laughs> I see all this stuff that we could have talked about, as is the case with this podcast. I We, we tend to... Meander. Meander. Yep. That we do. Well, that being said, are there any like parting words or pearls of wisdom that you want to leave us? Or with, any uh, stuff or any things you want to plug? Oh, so. we'll get to the plug afterwards. But anything about the topic in particular that uh, that you feel is crucial that has been left unsaid to this point? Huh. Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, uh, this was certainly a uh, huge, huge part of my life for for many years. Um, and uh, it's always fun to kind of get a chance to, to sort of wax nostalgic. Um, Very much. But, uh, you know, it, like there are people coming up. Uh, I, I don't know how easy it is to, you know, accidentally discover something um, the way that, uh, you know, somebody handed me a flyer in a, in, in a, in a classroom somewhere. And uh, that was just the, the door that opened, uh, you know, a ridiculous amount of good times and good memories and uh, and good music and of course this it all happened before the internet was was uh, the great homogenizer mm -hmm. um, but I, I imagine that there are folks out there that you know are going wow. to these large parties and large festivals now that are sort of having their you know eureka moment and and uh, i guess even though i'm not necessarily into that scene now um the idea that uh that there's still good times to be had uh, on the dance floor um does fill me with a little bit of hope that's very true Along those lines, one thing that fills me up with hope is that I'll look for some of my favorite old rave tunes on YouTube, for example, and invariably you will see comments from someone that say, oh man, 1992, I, was, uh, I wasn't born until seven years after that, but I love what I'm hearing. And that's, yeah. a, that's a very encouraging thing to see as well. Like, you know that it's not just a relic of its time, but that there really is something to it, something that I guess is still relatable on some on some level it might have like a class it might hit in a very classic way so it becomes timeless that's yeah what, that's what you like to hope when you're a big fan of something that mm -hmm. you believe in very true all right Stop well me geez I like i said i have notes after notes what uh what on earth am i going to leave us with okay well why don't i leave it for afterwards i um at the beginning of every uh episode I record a little snippet of this or that or something. I have written down for uh, another, from another purpose from a year or two ago, a, a story that I have from the rave scene. I think I'll uh, put that at the beginning. So maybe that will, that, that will kind of be a little slice uh, of life that we can uh, add to the beginning there. Um, I don't think I guess I have really very much more to say on the topic, at least that will, that will fit into our time frame. I really could go on and on and on about this. It was so important to me. <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah. Well, um, cannot thank you enough, uh, Brandon. It's been it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and it's just been so easy relating with you. So thank you so so much for coming onto the show. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we, we'd love to have you back sometime. You've mentioned all kinds of little uh, hot button topics, video games, and uh, and uh, electronic music, etc. That uh, we talk about on the show all the time. So mikasa, yeah. sukasa. Anytime. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. Well, um, as Bianca mentioned, if you have anything that uh, you uh, would like to uh, plug or have us add into the show notes, uh, by all means, uh, you're most welcome to, uh, to let people know uh, what kind of things that you have produced. Okay. Well, I've basically just got a SoundCloud page <laughs> for now. But uh, 
Yeah. Oh, sure thing. What's uh, what's the address of your SoundCloud? Oh, it's uh, soundcloud.com slash battle android trooper. You've got a Mixcloud site. Oh, yes, and it's the same. So it's Mixcloud slash same thing, I think. Right. That one I've already got in there. There's some live oh, PAs of yours that I've listened to so many times. I really, really like your music, man. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Is that like acid techno kind of a sound that, you know, it's, if you if you like the TV 303, uh, then it, it pushes all the right buttons. So I will yeah, gladly include thanks that. Thanks for that. Sure thing. Well, man, thank you so, so much for joining us. I had a really good time. We had a really good time, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, dear. Uh, of course sure. you did. Thank, thank, and Bianca. Thank a big, a special thanks to Bianca Ow, for biting me, bird. For getting bited by a bird repeatedly, Ugh. and for being such a good sport about this fairly alien topic to her. We really appreciate it, my dear. Ugh. And thank yeah, you, sure. Joey, for squawking so much, and for bathing and for wiping yourself on my wife. Good bird. Ugh. All right. So, darling, do you want to open your mouth for the first time in a long time and uh, tell people how they can get in touch with us? Okay, if you want to uh, leave your thoughts about how boring this episode was, you can uh, reach us on the web. We are squarefm.demodulated.com. If you want to leave us a voicemail or a verbose email, you can reach us. Our our email is squarefm at demodulated.com. Or to give us uh, your thoughts on the 140 characters, we are at squarewavesfm on Twitter. That we are. And so with that, um, very special thanks to Brandon for joining us today. Big thanks to uh, Joe and to Will for your uh, thoughtful uh, voicemails. Will, sorry again about my technical ridiculousness. I will edit uh, that little excerpt into uh, the podcast. And thanks to you all for listening. Uh, love you lots, and we'll catch you this time next week. Bye-bye. Bye.